it's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days and we are in the last days. Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, has sold nearly 50 million copies. That's an incredible number. After that, that Newsweek christened the movie, The Da Vinci Code, based upon the book, as the hottest movie of 2006, months before it was even released. When we consider these things, we must consider the effect that that book is having on the nation, America, as well as the world at large. In fact, when you think about it, people's views all over the place are changing regarding who God is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the occult and the way they look at Christianity. We must ask the question, what if Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, is in fact The Da Vinci Con? What if it's a huge con that is being used to deceive multitudes? In fact, what if what decon, rat poison, is to rats, is what Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, is to the human being? One of the things I found intriguing when studying The Da Vinci Con was its similarities with decon rat poison. I was fascinated to discover when reading the ingredients of my box of decon rat poison that only a minuscule 0.005% of the product is listed as actual poison. On the other hand, a massive 99.995% of the product is made of inactive, harmless ingredients that serve as bait. Decon is so effective in killing rats because it's made up of 99.995% benign ingredients like grain, flavor enhancer, sweetener, and dye and only an imperceptible infinitesimal 1 in 20,000 parts poison. Tragically for the poor rat, this minuscule amount of poison is more than enough to send a large rodent to an early rat grave. Even more tragic for those who have been deluded by the Da Vinci Con is that they are ingesting what amounts to spiritual decon for humans. Brown packs a large percentage of his attractive bait with plenty of enticing dye, flavor enhancer, and sweetener, while the reality is that it is laced with lethal doses of spiritually toxic ingredients resulting in an intoxicating fatal concoction for those buying into his con. 
Strangely enough, there's a far greater percentage of poison in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code than decon rat poison. While this may prove that rats are more discerning than human beings, and therefore harder the poison, there's another difference that makes it even worse for human beings. The rat only loses his physical life, whereas the Word of God declares that the spiritually deceived lose their eternal souls forever. The reason Dan Brown's book needs to be refuted is because countless millions of people have eaten the bait, and within that bait, they have ingested a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit spirit. A gospel that will not save the soul, but damn the soul. Da Vinci Code actor Ian McKellen, who played Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, stated when he was asked if they were going to put a disclaimer at the front of the movie version of the Da Vinci Code that he has faith in the story of the Da Vinci Code and that it is, quote, the Bible that should have a disclaimer in the front saying this is fiction, end quote. Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code has influenced countless people. Over two million Americans have acknowledged that the Gnostic Da Vinci Code has changed their religious views. One in three Canadians states that they now believe that there are descendants of Jesus now walking around on earth. In fact, tragically, many people have had their faith shipwrecked on the rock of Dan Brown's pack of lies. What you are about to discover is the code behind Dan Brown's code. However, that agenda, as you are about to see, is to con you into turning from the one true God to the power of Satan and his lies. In the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown claims to reveal ancient Gnostic secrets about Jesus and Mary Magdalene in Da Vinci's paintings. What if Dan Brown is in fact leading his readers to a theological construct that replaces the worship of God for the worship of the devil? What if the evidence of that fact is being revealed right now? Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, depicts the discovery of the Holy Grail at the Louvre Museum, actually in the glass pyramid just in front of the Louvre Museum. What is interesting is Dan Brown seems to have a fascination with the number 666, the very number that the Bible calls the number of the beast. However, for Dan Brown, it's this very number that signifies the greatest price, the Holy Grail, in the glass pyramid before the Louvre Museum. According to the Bible, 666 is not the number of the place of the Holy Grail, but the number of the Antichrist. What if Brown's Da Vinci Code is really the Devil's Code? After all, why is he using the Devil's number? What if what Brown is purporting to be the resurrection of truth is really the resurrection of an ancient lie that's preparing the world for the Antichrist? What is absolutely amazing for those who know the truth, for those who know the Word of God, is that God's Word actually tells the future in advance. And what Dan Brown is doing right now, as well as many other occultists that are uh, sucking the world into an occult worldview, is actually prophesied throughout the pages of Scripture very clearly, because God knows the end from the beginning. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ warns that this number that Dan Brown uses and that many other occultists use, 666, would be prevalent in the last days just prior to Jesus Christ's return. In fact, Jesus gave the book of Revelation to the church. Revelation chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 13, it talks about a world government where all the world comes together and worships the dragon, Satan, because he gives his power to the beast. And it says that all nations, kindreds, and tongues will worship the beast. And it says in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18, And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, free and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead, and that no one is able to buy or sell unless he has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then it goes on to say, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding... Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. In fact, the Apostle Paul warns that the Antichrist would sit in the temple of God, showing himself as though he is God, and that he would come and bring a strong delusion that would deceive many. 
and that his reign would be consummated at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would slay him with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. This strong delusion is what's taking place in the world today, because Paul said even in his day, the mystery of iniquity was already at work. John's called it the spirit of Antichrist that was working even in his day to prepare the way for this. Now we're seeing a resurrection of the very lies that the early church had to stand against in the first couple centuries. However, when we look at Dan Brown's code, we get another hint beyond the 666 supposed window panes in the Louvre Museum. Is it possible that the very scriptures that we read about, the very number that the Bible says would become popular under the Antichrist in the last days, is part of a bigger code? Dan Brown teaches the Da Vinci Code that the purest gospels are not the Christian gospels that were written in the first century, but that the purest gospels are the Gnostic gospels. In fact, uh, he encourages his readers by way of his book to actually get into the Gnostic gospels. In fact, that's where he claims to have gotten his idea about Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene. However, the best way to refute the Gnostic Gospels is just to look at them and realize how ridiculous they really are. In fact, what the Gnostic Gospels teach is that matter, or the physical world, is actually evil. In fact, it's interesting how they come to that because they actually operate from what we can call an inverted hermeneutic, a hermeneutic whereby they go to the Old Testament and turn everything upside down. In fact, the Gnostics taught that the God that created the world, the physical world, the physical universe, is an evil God. They taught that Yahweh, or Jehovah, is a wicked, monstrous God. In fact, they taught the real God was the ultimate depth, and he had a series of emanations that, that emanated off of him, one of them being Sophia, and that Sophia wanted to get back to him, but she became frustrated and angry with him, she, because she couldn't get back to him because it was forbidden to know him. And then in her frustration, she had a type of abortion, she, she created Yahweh, and realizing that she had created a monstrous God, as the Gnostics taught, she cast him out of the cosmos into a remote uh, area of the cosmos. Now, Yahweh was there alone. He was considered to be an ignorant God with great power, not knowing there were any gods before him. And he, therefore, created the physical universe, humanity, the earth. And therefore, the Gnostics teach that we are actually the product of an evil God and that he was cast out of heaven. You see the inversion there. Instead of Satan being cast out of heaven by the creator of the world, God is cast out of heaven. And God becomes the devil in Gnosticism. In fact, it's interesting because Gnosticism teaches that Sophia, the goddess that was made by the ultimate depth, became the savior. How did she become the savior? She recognized what she had done by creating Yahweh and then him creating the physical universe and trapping us within this matrix. So what Sophia set out to do was let Adam and Eve know that they really had a spark of divinity within them because they were ultimately transmitted from her and the ultimate death. She channels the serpent in the garden with the message, ye shall be as gods. Now Genesis chapter 3 tells us it was Satan. And Gnostics can call Satan by Sophia or any other name, but Satan by any other name is still that old devil. And Gnosticism was used way after uh, the Old Testament was written. And the Old Testament account of what happened was inverted to get people to turn from the true God, the Creator, to Satan. In National Geographic's glorification of the Gospel of Judas, they acknowledge that it was written by Gnostics and that Gnostics believe that the Creator is evil and that the serpent is the real hero. The Gnostics were mystics. That is to say, they were people that felt they could have some kind of direct access to God. 
The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. But this kind of knowledge is not everyday knowledge. It is not book learning. It is insight. It is intuition. It is that ability to know something about yourself, to know that you have a spark of the divine inside of you, and to recognize the God that you profess to be the God that is outside is the same as that spark of the divine that is within you. The Gnostics were convinced that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was a good figure. In fact, the Gnostics turned the story of the Garden of Eden upside down because the serpent was a rather engaging character. After all, the serpent said to Eve, take some of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to Gnostics, that sounded like a wonderful invitation. Wouldn't you like to have a bite of an apple of knowledge and have all the juice of knowledge in your being? The Gospel of Judas uses familiar scenes to convey unfamiliar ideas. One day, he was with his disciples in Judea, and he found them gathered together and seated in pious observance. When he approached his disciples, offering a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread, he laughed. Jesus comes upon the group of disciples when they are celebrating together what looks to be a sacred meal. Maybe it's kind of like the Eucharist. And uh, they're offering a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread, and Jesus laughs. In fact, in the Gospel of Judas, Jesus laughs a great deal. He's laughing because they think that they're worshiping the true God, but in fact they have it wrong. They're worshiping the God who created this world, who's not the true God. The only one who understands is Judas. To the Gnostics, the God who created Earth wasn't worthy of worship. Do you really want to believe the Gnostic Gospels, which turn the God of the universe, the creator of all the beauty that we've seen, into the devil, and then venerate Satan in the garden as he spoke to Eve? Do you really want to commit spiritual suicide? I think it's important that we understand that the Word of God tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, that uh, that old serpent called the devil and Satan was cast down, and his angels were cast down with him, and that he deceived the whole world. Tragically, uh, many Gnostic teachings, which are truly satanic at their core, are finding their way through not only literature like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and a plethora of other books on Gnosticism and, and uh, supposed relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, but also through an abundance of Hollywood movies. In fact, many of Hollywood's most memorable movies push this whole Gnostic theme in preparation for the very delusion we've been warning you about. In fact, the internet is rife with a plethora of websites that encourage young and old to get into Gnosticism. And many people don't have a clue what Gnosticism at its core teaches. Here we're at a popular Gnostic website, www.enemies.com. In fact, here we see a depiction of Jesus upon the cross, which says that he died for our sins. However, when you put your little cursor over the depiction of Jesus, his chest splits open and out props a serpent, because a real object of Gnostic veneration is Satan. In fact, to the right, on the very front page of the website, we read this. The Gnostic Friends Network is a virulent anti-Christian outpouring. It takes the Gnostic belief that the world was the work of the devil and turns it into a charter for devil worshiping that has the shrill sensation seeking of a latter-day Aleister Crowley. Nobody in their right mind would just simply fall down and worship Satan knowing that they would spend eternity in torment. However, that's why Satan has to come with myths, tries to put a spin on himself where he presents himself as Sophia or Pan or some other being and still receives the worship. In fact, Dan Brown on Good Morning America told Charlie Gibson 
that he felt the whole Gnostic thing was a crackpot theory. But then he came to say it made more sense than what he learned from his childhood. In fact, he has one of his main characters in the Da Vinci Code saying the same thing as he's trying to show forth his views. Now, I think it's important that we understand that historians, many of them, realize that the Da Vinci Code is a joke, having not recognized that there are some serious demonic implications to the story. Umberto Eco, a famous novelist and historian, he, said, he compared the Da Vinci Code to uh, Pinocchio in Little Red Riding Hood. Now, if every time somebody bought one of Dan Brown's books, the only thing that happened was that his nose got bigger, like Pinocchio's, we wouldn't have such a serious situation. However, the Bible warns that in the last days, people would be deceived in such a way that they would turn from God's truth to mythology. In fact, many scholars believe that Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy to combat a satanic Gnostic threat that was already attacking the church. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 1st Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 that he's to stay there and make sure certain people don't teach strange doctrines and myths and genealogies and that's basically what Dan Brown's book is about. Myths and genealogies of uh, you know, the descendants of Mary Magdalene and so forth. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says that the Holy Spirit speaks expressly, that the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Many scholars point out that Paul had referenced Gnosticism specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he closes his epistle in verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing, have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. When Paul speaks of this counterfeit knowledge, this so-called knowledge, he actually used the Greek word gnosis. It's from the word gnosis that we get the word to know. It means knowledge. It actually is a reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil when Gnostics speak of it. It's a reference to that hidden knowledge that the serpent gave or that Sophia or Satan gave when they found out we were gods. As you are discovering, the Da Vinci Code is actually a resurrection of the ancient lie way back in Eden with the first human family, whereby Satan said, ye shall be as gods. The Lord Jesus Christ calls Satan the father of lies, and no wonder, because all the way back in Genesis, thousands of years before the Gnostics even came to existence, God had warned mankind. And it's there, long before the Gnostics ever were even able to twist the book of Genesis, that we see Satan seeking to deceive mankind. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Incredibly, Dan Brown echoes Satan's lie to Eve by telling us in the Da Vinci Code that Jehovah is actually a composite name, which actually means Eve, along with another masculine god. One of the main characters, Sophie Nabu, the main character that is initiated into Gnosticism uh, throughout the book, uh, her very name is a code word for this deception that's going on. In fact, Dan Brown admitted that he uh, you know, had been different things with the spelling with different names and so forth. But it's interesting because just think, Sophie from Sophia. Sophia, uh, according to the Gnostics, she's the one who channeled the serpent. Biblically, that would be Satan. In fact, think of Sophia Nabu. Nabu is N-E-V-E, -E, Eve, you. 
She was the new Eve, and she's uh, basically initiated through Langdon and Teabing into the knowledge that she is uh, related to Mary Magdalene, who Dan Brown has as a goddess, and therefore uh, she has some sort of divinity. The same lies that the Bible warns about in the past that would come in the future, these ancient lies, even the Antichrist himself claimed to become God or be God, are now being taught through uh, popular culture. When the Apostle Paul speaks of the mystery of iniquity, the satanic powers that are at work to bring forth the ultimate Antichrist, he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, he says, Even him whose coming is in accord with the work of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. They perish, he says, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And God gives them over to a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be damned who did not receive the love of the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Probably the most effective producers of Gnostic movies are the Wachowski brothers. The Wachowski brothers produced movies like Bound, uh, movies like The Matrix, The Matrix Trilogy, and just recently, V for Vendetta. What most people don't realize is that these movies all have elements of Gnosticism and satanic thought embedded within them. Fueled by anticipation for the Matrix Brothers' next movie and glowing reviews, V for Vendetta topped the box office sales with its weekend debut at $26.1 million, only a million dollars less than the debut of the Wachowski's earlier blockbuster, The Matrix. V for Vendetta, the Wachowski Brothers' latest movie, is based upon the graphic novel by the same title written by Alan Moore. Moore is considered the Shakespeare of comic writers. Moore's graphic novels like League of Extraordinary Men, starring Johnny Depp, and others like From Hell and Constantine, or John Constantine, Hellblazer, have all become movies. V for Vendetta teaches the unsuspecting masses some of the same Antichrist doctrines that are found in the Wachowski Brothers' other films, Bound in the Matrix. What so much of the general public is unaware of, and so many Christians don't have a clue about, is that so many of these movies are based upon Satanism. In fact, Alan Moore, who wrote the books that these movies are based upon, Alan Moore is actually a practitioner of Satanist Aleister Crowley's Black Magic. Moore has stated, quote, I'd known about Crowley ever since I was 12, when I had my spate of reading Dennis Wheatley occult paperbacks and being told that Aleister Crowley was the wickedest man in the world. There are references to Crowley in V for Vendetta. Aleister Crowley, the most highly regarded Satanist of the last 100 years, believed that he was being used by Satan as his, quote, chief of staff, end quote, to prepare the world for the destruction of Christianity and the acceptance of the Antichrist. Moore not only admits to becoming demon-possessed after practicing Crowley's magic, but admits that his objective was to become a more effective writer. V for Vendetta is actually a diabolical propaganda film where Aleister Crowley's New World Order run by the Nietzschean Superman is outlined in his satanic manifesto, The Book of the Law. This includes a wholesale slaughter of Christians and a bloodbath that brings an atmosphere conducive to the rise of the beast in fulfillment of what Crowley called the Age of Horus. What you are about to discover is that V for Vendetta is a bold and almost prophetic picture of the Crowleyan ideal for ushering in the Age of Horus and replacement of the Age of Jesus Christ or the Dying God. Aleister Crowley's Satanic Manifesto, the Book of the Law, was based upon the credo for the Satanic New Age called, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Crowley stated, With my hawk's head I will peck out the eyes of Jesus as he hangs upon the cross. In the Book of the Law, Aleister Crowley actually teaches the sacrifice of children. He teaches elsewhere that the best sacrifice is that of an innocent male child. And he also teaches the sacrifice of young virgin girls and the dismemberment of their bodies and writing the names of the demons upon their limbs. In fact, Moore quotes Crowley's satanic maxim, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole law, in V for Vendetta repeatedly throughout the graphic novel. Here on page 217, we see V telling Evie, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. On page 187 of the graphic novel, we see V after committing a string of murders and bringing anarchy, quoted Crowley again, stating, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law.
Here we see V telling Evie that if she wants him to murder somebody for him, that she's just to pick a rose. He says, quote, to pick a flower is not a large thing. Understand what is being offered here and do as thou wilt. Aleister Crowley, the Satanist, Satan's chief of staff as he called himself, he had stated that to influence popular culture that his followers would get in touch with demons, basically sell their souls, and channel these demons to affect the masses. To be sure, it seems clear that Moore was channeling these entities long before he began practicing Crowley's magic, whether he was always conscious of it or not. He also claims to be in touch with a demonic entity that is, quote, highly skilled in mathematics and in the visual arts. Perhaps besides Moore's Gnosticism, his channeling of a demon that specializes in the visual arts also motivated the Wachowskis to adapt his satanic V character to the big screen. Moore claims that he turned to magic because he wanted to open himself up to occult forces that would help him in his writing ability. He stated, quote, I found that I couldn't progress any further with writing by strict rationality. If I wanted to go further with my writing, make it more intense, more powerful, make it say what I wanted to say, I had to take a step beyond technique and rational ideas about writing. And this something that was transrational, if you will, this being magic. The New York Times christened V for Vendetta a blockbuster blowout that, quote, puts vengeance and man over forgiveness and God. And further acknowledge that, quote, objections have been raised about whether V for Vendetta turns a terrorist into a hero, which is precisely what it does. However, the New York Times would have us believe, the glorification of evil notwithstanding, that it was not really subversive. Unlike other mass superheroes like Batman and Robin, V is not out there to uphold law and order and protect innocent people. In fact, V uses the most catastrophic acts of terrorism uh, to blow up buildings and to cause anarchy to bring in his new world order. In fact, he even tells Evie, his sidekick, that blowing up buildings can change the world. In fact, there are a few not-so-subtle hints in the Wachowski Brothers movie, V for Vendetta, that do show you who V represents, representing, of course, the devil. In fact, there are even more in the graphic novel that make it clear as day that V is a depiction of Satan. Alan Moore, after mentioning Satanist Anton Zander LeVay in an interview, went on to talk about his collaborator who was hanging out with Carl LeVay, Anton LeVay's daughter. Alan Moore states that in Crowley's novel Moonchild and his novel Diary of a Drug Fiend that Crowley portrays, quote, all the Satanists, end quote, as, quote, the good guys, end quote. This is obviously true in V for Vendetta as well. In fact, Satanists just aren't projected as the good guys, but Satan himself is the ultimate hero. Newsweek says that V is obviously the hero in V for Vendetta. Newsweek stated, the movie grants him absolute moral superiority from beginning to end. Sure, Evie tells him he's a monster and then tries to make out with his mask. In a movie, when the pretty girl falls in love with you and stays in love with you, you're a hero. Not only does V for Vendetta depict all the Satanists as good guys, but as we shall see, those who are depicted as conservative or Christians are depicted as absolutely evil and must be wiped out. The superhero V is depicted as a heroic figure that has come to save the day from radical reconstructionist form of Christianity through terrorism and inciting revolution. Another example in which V is portrayed as a devil is that he introduces himself before he commits a murder with the first lines from the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil. Please allow me to introduce myself. I am a man of wealth and taste. Notice that V is depicted in this caption at the end of his declaration as a devil with horns. V, as in several other places throughout V for Vendetta, reveals his identity as not just a satanic figure, but as Satan himself. Sympathy for the Devil is the first person narrative in which the words leave no doubt as to who is supposed to be singing. The words are even more chilling when you realize that Keith Richards, who admitted to the Los Angeles Times that he's possessed by as many as four or five demons, and that the Stone songs are channeled through them and arrive in mass in the same way that a medium channels spirits at a seance. 
It does not take long to see what kind of spirits the Stones have challenged with songs like Sympathy for the Devil and albums like their Satanic Majesty's Request. Both the Stones and Alan Moore who wrote V for Vendetta have more than Sympathy for the Devil in common, as both have been influenced by Satanist Aleister Crowley and have sought to bring about his Satanic Revolution. Keith Richards has admitted that Kenneth Anger, who is one of Crowley's most devoted and famous revolutionaries, stated that Richards is his right-hand man. Kenneth Anger, who co-founded the Church of Satan, worked under Satanic Majesty's request with the Rolling Stones, and Mick Jagger did the score music for Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising, and appeared in Anger's tribute to Lester Crowley, Invocation, My Demon Brother. These are films that came out decades before V for Vendetta that were already promoting Crowley's Satanism. At one point in the graphic novel, V introduces himself to a minister who has been totally demonized and portrayed as a child molester by stating, quote, I am the devil. I have come to do the devil's work. Moore describes a similar experience of his own that mirrors the transformation that V went through as a result of practicing Crowley's Satanism when he opened up the door to possession by what he describes as a demonic entity. Moore stated, I decided I was going to become a magician. All of a sudden, the lightning bolt hit. It all got a bit strange. For a couple of months after that, I was looking back probably in some borderline schizophrenic state. I was very spaced out, Godstruck. You babble for a while, babble like an idiot. I must have been unbearable for two or three months. I've integrated that now into the rest of my life. Moore stated, I found myself seemingly in conversation with an entity, its presence that surrounded my head moving and speaking lucidly to me. Moore claims that he was at first terrified by this demonic entity, but warmed up to it and began to converse with it. In V for Vendetta, Finch undergoes a very similar experience, and he also undergoes some kind of Gnostic revelation with symptoms that are very similar to what Moore describes. Finch takes LSD because he wants to experience what V has experienced in an effort to get into his mind so that he can apprehend him. However, what takes place is that he realizes he is in bondage to a prison made by society and his own moral construct from which he, like V and Evie before him, were set free. Finch states, but I want to know, to know what it's like being him. But they say LSD only magnifies what's already there. Who can release me? Who's controlling and constraining my life except me? Then, while on LSD, he states, I'm free, free, vomited up the values that imprisoned me, feeling vast, feeling virginal. Finch strips naked like V and Eve before him when they experience Gnostic initiation. He frees himself of all the moral restrictions and is free to follow Crowley's satanic slogan, do what thou wilt, with any pang of conscience. Finch, now naked, takes a trip from his prison and utters some French words that mean, quote, the way, the truth, and the life. This was, in fact, Jesus' words about himself. However, Alan Moore blasphemously uses it of his character being set free from an oppressive Christian totalitarian government through an LSD trip. Tragically, these are the movies and the comic books that so many of our children are reading and watching. Uh, unfortunately, that's exactly what, who Satan is going after. In fact, Aleister Crowley himself said that the family is public enemy number one. In fact, he said that his works were supposed to be circulated among the young because he knew that they were impressionable and they're more easily swayed and less given to reason. So Crowley would attack the young and try to indoctrinate them because he felt as the young grew up, they would be primed for the new satanic order. What better way to influence the youth on a mass level with Crowley's Satanism than movies and comics and music, uh, so much of which is inundated with Satanist Aleister Crowley's message. It's no coincidence that the main female character in the movie is named Evie. In fact, in the graphic novel, her name is eventually shortened to Eve. And just as Satan had deceived Eve in the garden, he used the same deceptions in V for Vendetta as we see Eve indoctrinated into the Gnosis. In fact, the main male character outside of V in the movie, the most powerful male character, we should say, his name is Adam. In the biblical account, we read that Eve was deceived by Satan to rebel against the command of God. 
She forsook Adam and her creator to follow Satan to her own doom. Just as a federal head of the human race's name was Adam, as revealed in Holy Scripture, so in V for Vendetta, the human authority is represented by the High Chancellor, whose name is also Adam. In V for Vendetta, Evie leaves the authority of Adam and the God of the state to follow V, who, as we have seen, is an unabashed picture of Satan. In Gnosticism, Satan becomes Sophia, and is depicted as the Savior who channels the serpent. In V for Vendetta, V is depicted as the Savior as he rescues Evie from the authoritarian cops who are agents of the corrupt religious state. In Gnosticism, Satan is cast as a Savior who channels the serpent. Alan Moore's V for Vendetta casts Satan as a hero, delivering Evie from an oppressive totalitarian Christian fascist government. Speaking of serpents and Gnosticism, Alan Moore has admitted that he actually became a Gnostic. In fact, he's also admitted that he is in touch with and worships the Gnostic god Glycon. Glycon was a serpent god. In fact, his appearance was the body of a serpent and the head of a man. Even as Satan took Eve captive in the guise of setting her free, so Evie becomes V's reluctant prisoner in his underground lair called the Gallery of Shadows. As in the book of Genesis, V sets Evie free by leading her to the knowledge of good and evil. She had been in the fog and she comes to understand her true identity as V initiates her into Gnosis. Even as Satan deceived Eve at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so V seduces Eve with a misleading promise of liberation and deification through knowledge. V states, quote, You asked for knowledge, Eve, and that is what I shall pass on to you. V seeks to convince Evie that she's imprisoned by rules. He even states that, quote, happiness is a prison. Evie, happiness is the most insidious prison of all. Evie wants to help V in his terrorist war of anarchy. But she states that she's afraid. Evie states that she's afraid to rebel against the state. You see, Evie is afraid of death because she witnessed both her mother get killed and later she witnessed her friend Gordon murdered in the same way that her mother was put to death. After Eve loses her fear of death and the consequences of rebelling against the authority, she attains godhood. Eve has learned from V that doing what she wilt without fear of death is to attain godhood. Evie is tricked into believing that V has become God because he does his own will. Quote, you can do whatever you want, can't you? I suppose that's conquering the universe, doing what you want. Eve has now lost her fear of the fascist Christian authority and is prepared to do what she wilts. After Evie loses the fear of death, she is brought up to the top of a building to experience Gnostic baptism, wherein she is incarnated with the spirit of V. In the graphic novel, Eve is stripped naked and she's told by V to, quote, seize it, encircle it with your arms, bury it in your heart up to the hill, become transfixed, become transfigured forever. At this point in the film, she stretches forth her hands in the same way that V did earlier in the movie, when he first experienced transformation. Evie has not only become the conqueror of the universe through throwing out the shackles of authority and following V who identifies himself as Satan, but now she is told that she will be transfigured forever, i.e., you will never truly die. This is Satan's echo from Eden, quote, thou shalt surely not die. In the end, Evie was really ultimately doing Satan's will. In fact, in the graphic novel we read, she states, quote, The chaos progresses splendidly without us. Eve, for my part, I rather think that the time has come for putting certain things to order. Eve then says, Are we going to do something or not? V responds by quoting Aleister Crowley and saying, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Eve responds, Quoting Aleister Crowley isn't good enough. It doesn't answer my question. I want to know what thou wilt, V. I want to know what your will is. V thinks about it. You want me to show you my will? Very well. Very well then. And he beckons Eve this way. Another clue as to who V represents is seen in this occult comic of Crowley, which was adapted from a picture of Crowley when he was just 14 years old. Here Crowley is depicted as giving his V for victory sign. 
Crowley claimed that it was he that had originated the popular V for Victory sign before it was ever used by Winston Churchill. Crowley, like V and V for Vendetta, desired to overthrow the British government and establish the new satanic eon. Crowley's V sign was used extensively by the hippie youth movement throughout the 1960s. Even as Satanists to Lester Crowley, Alan Moore, and the Wachowski brothers depict Satan as the hero and Satanists as the good guys, even so, they depict Christianity and conservatives in the worst possible light and demonize the Christian faith. Here in the Wachowski Brothers movie, we see crosses on either side of this ravenous dictator, although the crosses have been modified a little bit with two horizontal beams. When you look at the graphic novel, it's simply just a traditional historical cross. V for Vendetta depicts a fascist state run by power-hungry Christians who are caricatured in the worst possible way, ranting and raving against Islam, censoring art, institutionalizing racism, outlawing homosexuality, imposing strict curfews, and doing inhumane experiments in Nazi-like concentration camps on homosexuals and other undesirables. The Christian fascist government has unleashed a virus that is responsible for the death of nearly 100,000 people. The ultra-conservative Christian state slogan is, strength through unity, unity through faith. Alan Moore has made some interesting statements. He said, quote, the actual religion Christianity is obviously something that is completely soul-destroying. Aleister Crowley taught that there would be a huge bloodbath when Christianity was destroyed to bring forth the reign of Antichrist. He stated, quote, The religion they call Christianity, the devil they honor they call God. I accept these definitions as a poet must do, if he is to be at all intelligible to his age. And it is their God and the religion that I hate and will destroy. The film even goes so far as to depict a reverend who represents the ruling party as a sexual pervert who is shown attempting to rape Evie while she is dressed like a little girl. In the graphic novel, Evie is a 16-year-old prostitute. V heroically saves Evie in a nick of time and kills the wicked clergyman. In the novel upon which the movie is based, V murders a reverend by forcing him at gunpoint to swallow a cyanide-laced communion wafer representing the body of Christ. In reference to V for Vendetta and to Crowley's teaching, Alan Moore says, quote, destruction is a first step in the creative process. Moore states that, quote, if you are going to be doing something new, then to a degree you're destroying whatever preceded it. In the case of Crowley and Vendetta, what precedes it is an intolerable Christian-influenced state that must be destroyed to make way for the Antichrist world of do what thou wilt. Actress Natalie Portman, who played Evie, stated, quote, we all realize that at a certain point violence might be the only means of effectively combating injustice. Sadly, the world will one day deem Christians unjust simply because they do not countenance perverted behavior, and as the last remnants of a seared conscience, they too will be eradicated all in the name of tolerance. V says in V for Vendetta that anarchy has two faces, one to destroy and one to create. The next stage after anarchy is implementation of the satanic new world order. In V for Vendetta, we never really get to see what that order is supposed to look like. However, in the graphic novel, we get a huge hint. Chaos and anarchy are everywhere as lawlessness increases. Young people are scrawling cuss words on the ground against their parents, and looters are being shot. Evie says, V, is this anarchy? Is this the land of do as you please? V tells her that the chaos he has heralded thus far is only the land of take what you want, and the land of do as you please is still to come. He states, quote, with anarchy comes an age of ordnung, which is to say voluntary order. This is not anarchy yet. V assures Evie that the present chaos is only a prelude to true anarchy for which he was destined. V then quotes The Second Coming by the famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats. This gives us a good clue as to where all this is going if we haven't already figured it out. V says, How did Yeats put it? Turning and turning in the widening gear? The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Yeats was actually a member of the same satanic order called the Golden Dawn that Aleister Crowley belonged to. 
And Yeats's poem, he conveys an apocalyptic vision that he had of the end of the world, when the world was marked by chaos and anarchy, heralding the rise of the Antichrist, who would bring order to a desperate world. Detective Finch, after hearing V's statement on a tape recorder about being the devil and doing the devil's work, then ties V's statement to a famous murder case nearly 20 years ago. Since the story is taking place in 1997 in the graphic novel, that would put the famous murder case between 1977 and 1980. The only case that would fit the bill would be the son of Sam or David Berkowitz serial killings, which took place in the late 1970s. However, the line, I am the devil, and I've come to do the devil's work, was actually uttered by Tex Watson of the Manson family as he introduced himself at Sharon Tate's mansion minutes before the massacre. What is interesting is that both Berkowitz in the East Coast and Manson in the West Coast were involved in satanic cults that were seeking to create chaos, to create a climate, to bring forth the Antichrist. In fact, Son of Sam killer David Berkowitz himself has testified that this is exactly what they were trying to do. And this was uh, a time when they began to think about uh, maybe even taking human lives, human sacrifices. We believe that the, the devils right-hand man, his, his key player in, in these like end times or so forth, was, is going to come on the scene one day. Our idea was to create the atmosphere where there's lawlessness and disorder everywhere. This is the very context of what is taking place in V for Vendetta. Just as Manson used music and charm to deceive young ladies and men, so V does the same. Biblically, we see an interesting theme also in popular history. Nero burned down Rome and then blamed it upon the Christians. Manson was trying to bring chaos and then emerge out of a cave and then declare himself the Christ, which would really be the Antichrist. It would come to pass. David Berkowitz admitted they were trying to bring chaos to bring forth the emergence of Antichrist. Adolf Hitler actually had a building burned down and blamed on the opposing party so that he could get elected or seen as this domino effect through history. Ultimately, when it all goes down, everything's already being set into place. In V for Vendetta, V is seen setting up dominoes. The idea is that everything is being put into place so enough chaos can come forth that would create a climate to bring forth the Antichrist. Aleister Crowley found great resistance to his new satanic age from educated adults. He believed that by turning to the young and impressionable, he would find an easy target to accept his Satanism. Another Wachowski film, though more subtle than V for Vendetta, yet just as satanic as their blockbuster, The Matrix. The Matrix took in nearly $500 million in ticket sales worldwide, won four Academy Awards as considered the most influential movie in recent history. Ironically, The Matrix has been called the most analyzed movie in history, and yet very few people realize what it was really all about. Sadly, millions of Christians were deceived into believing that The Matrix was actually a Christian-type film. Since there was much Christian imagery and a smattering of Christian terminology throughout The Matrix, it was, it was believed that, hey, this must be a Christian film. Maybe the Wachowski brothers are Christians. In fact, all kinds of websites popped up on the internet extolling it as a Christian film. It was actually reported that there were more images uh, and video clips used of Neil Anderson in The Matrix to depict Jesus in Christian churches throughout the world than any other movie released up until that date. A cursory viewing of the movie could definitely lead many people to that conclusion. However, when you understand uh, Gnosticism and you understand some of the admissions made by the Wachowski brothers and what they are about, you actually discover that the Matrix is not Christian. In fact, it's absolutely not Christian. In fact, as you're about to see, it's absolutely anti-Christ. The Wachowski brothers, both the creators and the directors of the Matrix, in a rare canon moment stated that the Matrix is filled with Nietzschean philosophy. They stated, quote, it's all there in Nietzsche, man. We dwell in the dominion of truth and are marshaling our armies of metonyms and anthropomorphisms into our future work. Nietzsche, who also inspired Adolf Hitler, taught his followers to use lies in the effort to bring forth the Superman race. 
In the Wachowski's earlier movie, V for Vendetta, we hear the repeated refrain that lies can be used to tell the truth. Nietzsche stated, quote, to be truthful means using the customary metaphor in moral terms, the obligation to lie according to a fixed convention, to lie herd-like in style, obligatory for all. Jesus called Satan the father of lies in 1 John, which was written to actually refute the satanic Gnostic threat in the early church. John says that no truth is of the lie. In fact, it's interesting that uh, Satan inspired Gnosticism to give a retelling, as we've seen, of the Genesis story to teach that Satan is the liberator of humankind. In fact, it's interesting because as we look at the Matrix, we're going to see that the Matrix is another retelling of the Genesis story and another glorification of Gnostic Satanism. The reason so many sincere believers were convinced that the Matrix reports a Christian worldview is because the storylines seem to be based upon salvific and eschatological themes that appear at first glance to run deep in Scripture. Moreover, these themes revolved around the messianic Christ-like figure Neo Anderson, whose mission is to save lost humanity from death and ultimate destruction. In fact, the barn of Christological themes are so obvious as Neo Anderson, played by Keanu Reeves, mirrors in many ways the main events in the Passion Week of Christ. At the beginning of the movie, we get clued in that Neil Anderson is a messianic figure as he's first cast in the mold of Jesus, but then as the movie progresses, Neo is not representative of the historical Jesus of the Bible, but the Gnostic Christ, a depiction of Antichrist. At the beginning of the movie, we see Troy, the computer hacker, saying to Neo, Hallelujah, you're my savior, man. Hallelujah, you're my savior, man. My own personal Jesus Christ. You get caught using Later in the trilogy, we see Neo Anderson referred to with different Christ titles, like the beginning, the end, savior, and messiah. We also see in the first Matrix that Neo is betrayed by Cypher, who depicts Judas. Here we see Cypher, like Judas before betraying Jesus, sharing a drink with Neo. Hey, you, uh, want a drink? Sure. In the following scene, he is sitting with the evil agents promising to betray Neo and Zion. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know what I realize? <sighs> Ignorance is bliss. We see at the end of Matrix Revelation that Neo dies a sacrificial death where he takes on the appearance of being crucified on a cross. His dead body ends up laying down in the form of a crucifix. And the architect declares, it is done, recalling the words of Christ on the cross, it is done or it is finished. It is done. In the Matrix, Neo is shot to death in room 303 by an agent. As he lays down his life sacrificially to set people free. However, later he is resurrected from the dead by the kiss of Trinity aboard the Nebuchadnezzar. After his resurrection from the dead, Neo declares to the architect that he is going to spread the good news throughout all the architect's creation. Next we see Neo ascends into the clouds recalling Jesus' ascension after he gave his disciples the Great Commission. Now we need to keep in mind that the Bible warns about false Christ, counterfeit Christ. 
And the scriptures identified Gnosticism as harboring the spirit of Antichrist that would bring forth the ultimate Antichrist in the last days. We find out about that in 1 John chapter 2 and in 1 John chapter 4 as well as the book of Revelation. Now, let's keep our eye on Neo Anderson and remember that while he seems to depict Christ in so many ways, as we take this closer look and we keep in mind the Gnosticism, the Gnostic type background of the Wachowskis and what they're trying to communicate, we'll see that he's obviously a false Christ, an Antichrist. When asked about the Matrix's alleged Gnostic overtones, the Wachowski brothers rejoined, quote, Do you consider that to be a good thing? End quote. If one holds to a biblical worldview and believes that the creator of the universe is good, the answer would have to be definitely not. The Wachowski brothers went even so far as to name one of the ships in the Matrix the Gnosis. Here we see Neo getting out of an elevator and being worshipped as Messiah who has been sent to save them. Just as he gets out of the elevator and a woman asks Neo to watch over his son, Jacob, who is said to be a crew member that serves aboard the Gnosis. Neo, please. I have a son, Jacob, aboard the Gnosis. Please, watch over him. I'll try. I have a daughter on the Icarus. Hollywood director Richard Stanley admitted that, I guess one could see the whole of the mass media as it stands today as some sort of extension of Gnostic faith. Maybe cinema itself is acting as some kind of handmaid into the apocalypse. He also acknowledged that the Gnostics turned the creator God into the devil and the devil into God. He stated, quote, In Gnostic terms, the Christian God who created the world in seven days is actually evil for doing that, for trapping our spirits into matter. I mean, the whole reason the Christians and the heretics fought so badly is because both sides believed that the other worshipped the devil, and both sides were diametrically opposed. What is especially foreboding is that while Gnosticism was the greatest threat to the early church, Satan did not have the power of Hollywood at his disposal to seduce the masses through Gnostic myth. If Stanley is correct, and the evidence suggests that he is, and Hollywood has gone Gnostic, they have really in fact gone Satanic. In Gnosticism Reborn, the Matrix as a shamanic journey, Jake Horsley, himself a Gnostic, states that the Matrix was an effective piece of Gnostic propaganda, and relishes in its diabolical triumph exclaiming, the film itself is a breakthrough work in the propaganda illumination program of the hidden rebel forces of the future. The Matrix deserves attention and respect beyond any other movie in recent memory. Perhaps one in a thousand of those who see the movie will recognize or even notice its Gnostic tenets. But regardless of this, everyone who sees the film has effectively been exposed to them. When the Wachowski brothers were asked if they believed that the world is in some way similar to the Matrix, the Wachowski brothers stated, we think the most important sort of fiction attempts to answer some of the big questions. Gnosticism teaches that an evil god, like that of the architect in the Matrix, has trapped us in an evil world of matter. Larry Kowski may be putting the ultimate explanation point on the Matrix as he has been in many ways repudiating his masculinity and is now dressing like a woman. In Gnosticism Reborn, The Matrix as Shamanic Journey, Jake Horsley goes on to state, quote, The story of the Matrix is authentically Gnostic. It is in fact and way beyond the X-Files, Gnosticism Reborn. Wherever exactly Annie and Larry Wachowski hatched their demonically inspired and wickedly effective pop parable about the enslavement of modern man to the machine, they have come up with a genuine original. It is an amazingly coherent blend of Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft. Horsley's declaration that the Matrix is a coherent blend of Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft is revealing. The Wachowski brothers claim that the Matrix was influenced by the movie Blade Runner that was actually based on Philip K. Dick's the Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. They stated Blade Runner was a benchmark science fiction film, a masterpiece. This is amazing because Philip K. Dick admitted that he was possessed by some entity. He was possessed by a spirit that was hostile to the creator of the present reality. 
In fact, Philip K. Dick was convinced that his existence was a hoax, that he didn't really exist, and that uh, the present reality is basically fictitious, and that we, like in the Matrix, are trapped in this cosmic prison. One android is depicted in a bar scene handling a serpent who is tied by the bar host with the original serpent in Genesis. Philip K. Dick said, I have been accused of holding Gnostic ideas. I guess I do. At one time, I would have been burned. Philip Dick taught that we are captives in a simulated prison camp that was created by evil forces that are now ruling the nightmare that most people believe is reality. Dick converted both God and Satan, making God the devil and the devil God. Dick claimed that, quote, Satan has spun a counterfeit reality, end quote, and that the diabolical being seeking to bring chaos to the world is actually God. Dick said, I have a secret love of chaos. There should be more of it. Now, it's hard to believe that it's a coincidence that both Philip K. Dick, who inspired the Matrix, and uh, Alan Moore, who wrote V for Vendetta, both Wachowski movies, that both of these people uh, claim to be possessed by spirit entities. Alan Moore actually calling his a demon. Like Dick, Keanu Reeves has claimed that he is used by demonic forces while acting. Reeves claims that he cannot act until the muse arrives, and that he takes what he refers to as, quote, demon rides, end quote. Director Taylor Hackford revealed that one of the reasons Keanu Reeves was chosen to play the lead role of Satan's son and the devil's advocate was because Keanu is, quote, a guy with lots of demons in him, and I was trying to tap and utilize that. According to some of the most popular myths, the creator of the physical world is basically an evil god who was basically thrown out of heaven and then created us. Now, what's interesting is the Gnostics called this being the Demiurge. Now, the Demiurge actually means craftsman or architect. What's interesting in the Matrix, the creator of the simulated dream world that's trapped humanity is called the Architect. In the Matrix, the Architect gives a speech to Neo Anderson and recalls the first world that he made as perfect. This brings to mind the creation of Eden in the book of Genesis before the fallen world. Hello, Neo. Who are you? I am the Architect. The first Matrix I designed was quite naturally perfect. It was a work of art. Flawless, sublime, a triumph equaled only by its monumental failure. The inevitability of its doom is apparent to me now as a consequence of the imperfection inherent in every human being. Thus I redesigned it, based on your history, to more accurately reflect the varying grotesqueries of your nature. However, I was again frustrated by failure. When I realized that the Matrix was not written from a Christian but Gnostic worldview, the essential aspects of the storyline fall into place. Thus, instead of being cast as Jesus Christ, Neo is actually Antichrist. The architect is God. Agent Smith represents Christ. Morpheus is the false prophet. Trinity is a Gnostic eon. The Matrix is Earth and Zion is Hell. At the beginning of the Matrix, Neo Anderson is asleep in front of his computer, when suddenly the following words appear on his screen. Wake up, Neo. This is the first clue that Neo is the victim of a delusion where he discovers that the life he is living is nothing more than a dream world created by the evil architect that has enslaved humanity. This artificial intelligence has placed the human race into huge brain-sucking vats that are designed to exploit their energy as their bodies rot and putrefy into black ooze and pods. According to the Wachowski brothers, quote, the dead people are liquefied and fed to the living people in the pods. Have you ever stood and stared at it, marveled at its beauty? Genius. Billions of people just living out their lives. A dream world is created in an effort to deceive humans into believing that they are alive and active. In reality, in the real world, their bodies are putrefying as the architect, who is the creator of the phony simulated world, is exploiting them to his own ends. Where none suffered, where everyone would be happy. 
Neo is called out of the world by answering the call of a ringing phone from outside the Matrix. The call in Gnosticism is that of the redeemed redeemer myth. The redeemer must first be redeemed himself, awakened from the delusion foisted upon him by Yahweh or the Creator, and then redeem others by alerting them to the delusion and the potential for deification. Unfortunately. The Gnostic Gospel of Philip, written in the third century, states, he, speaking of the Gnostic Christ, who was redeemed, in turn redeemed others. In the Matrix, Neo is first redeemed, and then he becomes the Redeemer. This is a far cry from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, the creator of the universe, who became flesh, and then died to redeem man. In a modern rewrite of the Garden of Eden narrative, Neo is faced not with a tree of knowledge of good and evil, but a forbidden pill that will expand his consciousness and help him see that the world he lives in is an illusion and awaken him to the real world. The Bible forbids so-called mind-expanding drugs as pharmakia, pharmacus, and pharmacon as part and parcel of Satan's attempt to deceive the world and open them up to demonic forces. Perpetrating the Gnostic myth, Morpheus tells Neo that he lives in a false reality. When you pay your taxes, it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. After Neo begins to wake up, he's initiated into a Gnostic baptism at Adam Street where Neo meets the Eon Trinity. Notice that the water is falling on them at Adam and Lake. Then go to the Adam Street Bridge. Get in. After this, Trinity is seen setting Neo Anderson free by removing a tracking device that was placed on Neo by the agents of the architect. In Gnosticism, Trinity, like Sophia, is an eon that is supposed to bring enlightenment to those who are imprisoned in the physical world by Yahweh, the Creator. Gnostics called Satan, who used the serpent in Genesis, Sophia. Sophia comes from the other side and promises Eve godhood and freedom from the matrix made up of evil matter if she will but follow him. In the matrix, it is Trinity, another Gnostic eon, that helps Neo from the other side. We gather another clue that is quite revealing as to the true identity of who Neo Anderson really is when we realize that the main ship that Neo Anderson flies upon in fighting against the architect is a Nebuchadnezzar. This is my ship, the Nebuchadnezzar. It's a hovercraft. This is the main deck. This is the core. Notice that the model number of the Nebuchadnezzar ship is Mark Three, number 11. This is yet another clue that Neo Anderson, or the new son of man, is a long-awaited Gnostic redeemer. Mark 3.11 in scripture is the testimony of demons when confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging him as the son of God. Mark 3.11 states, and whenever unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. Nebuchadnezzar was an ancient enemy of God's people and a picture of the Antichrist. Lukowski brothers stated that, quote, the Nebuchadnezzar is indeed a biblical reference from the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar not only threatened God's people with death who would not worship his image, but had visions of the coming Antichrist of which he himself was a picture. The book of Daniel states that his image was 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and that there were 6 different instruments used to worship him. Nebuchadnezzar, which represents freedom in the matrix, in reality represented oppression and slavery. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, known as Zion, burned down God's temple in 586 BC, and enslaved God's people, hardly a depiction of emancipation. 
The Wachowski brothers give us other clues as to Neil Anderson's identity in his very name. The Wachowski brothers acknowledge that names were carefully chosen for the characters and are impregnated with meaning. They stated that the names of the characters, quote, were all chosen carefully and all of them have multiple meanings, end quote. They also point out that this applies to numbers as well. The name Neil Anderson is quite revealing as Neo is the Greek word for new, and Ander is from the Greek andros for man. Thus we have son of man. Thus Neil Anderson is the new son of man. The Bible uses the title Son of Man in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in connection with His first coming in Daniel 7.13 and in Luke 19.10 and in reference to His second advent to defeat Antichrist in Matthew 24.29-31 the book of Revelation. In the Revelations, Neo is referred to as both Savior and Messiah. Neo Anderson as the new Son of Man is a Gnostic Savior, but from a biblical perspective, he is a false Messiah, a picture of the Antichrist. What we have here as an ancient Gnosticism is an inversion of truth. In the Matrix Reloaded, Zion, which biblically would be a picture of heaven or the heavenly city, is changed into a place of Gnostic orgies. They gather underground in the temple for prayers, yet engage in simulated sexual perversion. In the Bible, Zion refers to the heavenly city of God. In the Matrix, Zion is the ultimate party place. Tank declares, if the war was over tomorrow, Zion is where the party would be. Zion. If the war was over tomorrow, Zion's where the party would be. It's a city. The last human city. Where is it? Deep underground, near the Earth's core where it's still warm. However, even as Neo is not a picture of Christ, but Antichrist, and their enemy, the Creator, so Zion in the Matrix really seems to refer more to hell than to heaven, as is said to be, quote, underground, near the Earth's core, where it is still warm. Neo's gospel message is not that Jesus Christ died and rose again, giving the gift of life to those who believe in Him, but the Gnostic message that one must fight against the Creator, and is free to do as one wills, do as thou wilt. There are no rules and no boundaries. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. At the end of the Matrix, there's a battle between Agent Smith and Neo Anderson. However, when you understand Gnosticism and their usage of the inverted hermeneutic, you see that Agent Smith represents Christ and Neo Anderson the Antichrist at Armageddon. What began with his own redemption through Gnostic initiation at the beginning of the Matrix evolves to full-bloom deification as Neo achieves Godhood and exercises powers beyond that of Agent Smith, who is supposed to be a picture of Jesus Christ. Neo is able to create his own reality and the reality of others through his newly discovered and developed powers from beyond the Matrix. He's even able to stop speeding bullets in mid-air and overcome Agent Smith. Like the Antichrist who emerges as a figure of whom it will be said they worshipped him saying who can make war with him, Neo is worshipped as a god-man who has come to save the world. Crowley's ideal of a Nietzschean Superman and heralding the Antichrist and thus redeeming the world from the slave god, Yahweh, through the power of will and magic is realized by Neo Anderson. Here we go. Yes, we are here to speak with the Merovingian. Of course. He has been expecting you. In the trilogy, we learn of the Merovingian. He is said to be like Neo by Persephone. Please sit. Join us. This is my wife, Persephone. 
Something to eat? Just as Neo is in room 101 signifying that he is the one, the Merovingian is found dining on floor 101. Many Matrix fans point out that the Merovingian was once to be a savior like Neo, but failed. Who has time? What makes this interesting is that the Merovingians were a Gnostic church order of the Knights Templar. They were part of the royal dynasty in France that claimed that they were from the bloodline of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book, Holy Blood and Holy Grail, which Dan Brown was sued for plagiarizing when writing the Da Vinci Code, makes much of this bloodline as though it were truly the royal bloodline of Jesus. Many believe that the Antichrist will exploit the mythology surrounding the pseudo-bloodline of Jesus in making his claims to be the Christ. The Antichrist will not claim to be Jesus Christ in the historical sense, but to be the new chosen one who is being used by the Christ spirit consciousness to lead the world against Yahweh, the Creator. What is very tragic is that the Gnostic view of life by treating reality as fiction and life as a video game has provided the masses with a pretext to destroy life without any pang of conscience. This is particularly chilling when you realize that in Gnosticism, as in so much of Hollywood, their common enemies are Christians because we worship the Creator. Earlier I quoted Hollywood director Richard Stanley's admission that, quote, I guess one could see the whole of the mass media as it stands today as some sort of extension of Gnostic faith. Maybe cinema itself is acting as some kind of handmaiden to the apocalypse. In his movie, Dust Devil, Richard Stanley not only acknowledges the Gnostic inversion wherein God becomes the devil and the devil becomes God in Gnosticism, but he also states the Gnostic pretext that could lead to the wholesale slaughter of innocent human beings. Stanley stated, quote, in Gnostic terms, the Christian God is the wrong God, the usurper God. In Gnostic terms, there is no good or evil, only spirit and matter. But matter is inherently evil, and we have to constantly strive towards spirit. And the Christian God who created the world in seven days is actually evil for doing that, for trapping our spirits in the matter. You know who I am. I'm from Texas. I'm from the other side of the mirror. Like I'm from you. Stanley's movie Dust Devil is about serial killers who are possessed by demons and under the spell of Gnosticism to act as midwives, killing their victims in the name of freeing them from the Matrix. You have a spark of light inside of you. I'm just a midwife. All I have to do is make a small incision and let it out. Relax. It's all right now. Everything's all right. I'm right here. I should have done this days ago, but I get lonely sometimes. Forgive me. I won't keep you waiting any longer. There's no good or evil. Only spirit and matter. Only movement toward the light. And away from it. It's all light. All of it. Charles Manson, the world's most infamous serial killer, had a lot in common with the Gnostic serial killer in Dust Devil. In fact, uh, Charles Manson called himself Abraxas, the name of a Gnostic roosted-headed demon god. The Gnostic lie that the physical world is insignificant provided Manson, like the serial killer in Dust Devil, with an occult rationale or justification for sexual perversion and serial murder. Manson justified the murders he ordered the Manson family to commit by claiming that he was setting people free from their fleshly material existences. In my personal interviews with Susan Atkins, who was convicted of nine of the Manson murders, including that of Sharon Tate and her unborn baby, she related that Manson had deceived them into believing that murder was actually beneficial to the victim, and that they thought they were setting people free from the material world. 
The Matrix communicates that we are in an illusory video game-like world where there are no rules and the enemy is the creator and his followers. DC sniper Lee Malvo, the main gunman who terrorized and murdered American citizens in the Washington area, evidently held a Matrix-inspired Gnostic worldview and believed he was freeing people from the Matrix as he picked them off as they drove down the freeway or pumped fuel into their cars at gas stations. Malvo told FBI agents that if they wanted to understand his motives, they needed to watch The Matrix. Jailers found lines of dialogue from the film scribbled in his cell, including the lines, quote, free yourself of The Matrix, end quote. On October 7, 2002, a 13-year-old boy was shot to death as he was dropped off at school in Bowie, Maryland. The DC snipers left behind an occult tarot card with the words, Dear Mr. Policeman, I am God. In yet another Wachowski movie, The Assassins, one of the assassins views his job in murdering other people in cold blood as setting them free. Step outside and I'll set you free. Excuse me, sir. Would you this is interesting because Malvo claimed that in murdering other people, uh, based on what he had seen in another Wachowski movie, he was setting people free. Columbine killers Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold, who murdered several students before they turned their guns on themselves, were influenced by bands like Ramstein, who sing about shooting up innocent children in a school in songs like Weiss's Flesh, to violent video games like Doom, which they named their shotgun after. But they're also said to be influenced by the Matrix. In fact, they're said to have, quote, modeled their black trench coat mafia costumes on that of Neo, end quote, who wiped out all the architect's followers in the Matrix. The Gnostic concept that the body is evil or illusory is also found in classic movies like Donnie Darko. In Donnie Darko, Donnie is led by a mysterious demonic rabbit to flood a Christian school, as well as other acts of violence. Here Donnie is seen telling his psychiatrist that a rabbit named Frank is leading him. You did it again? I flooded my school and I burned out that pervert's house. <laughs> I only have a few days left before they catch me. Did Frank tell you to do these things? I have to obey him. He saved my life. Here we see Donnie talking to the rabbit that's teaching him that the human body is only a suit. Why do you wear that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? We noted that the director of Dust Devil acknowledged that Hollywood is basically a Gnostic uh, propagation machine. In fact, we also noted that he stated that uh, Hollywood, through Gnosticism, is possibly propelling the world toward the apocalypse. What's interesting is he mentioned that that whole Gnostic rationale that he sees in Dust Devil could also uh, justify a nuclear war and actually bring on the apocalypse because of the negation of the importance of anything material. What's interesting is one of the most uh, significant classic movies of all time, The Fight Club, starring Brad Pitt, also seems to propagate a Gnostic worldview. In The Fight Club, Brad Pitt plays Tyler Durden, who leads a Gnostic-like secret society of men who beat each other's bodies bloody to experience mystical enlightenment. Tyler Durden's Fight Club is more than just about beating each other up, though. It's also about violent and subversive revolution. Tyler Durden, who calls himself the Liberator, even seeks to corrupt youth as he splices single frames of pornographic images into family films. Because it affords them other interesting opportunities. Like splicing single frames of pornography into family films? So when the snooty cat and the courageous dog with the celebrity voices meet for the first time in Reel 3, that's when you'll catch a flash of Tyler's contribution to the film. Nobody knows that they saw it, but they did. 
even a hummingbird couldn't catch Tyler at work. The Fight Club eventually morphs into what is called Project Mayhem, where Durden, like V in V for Vendetta, turns out to be a Gnostic terrorist. Tyler gives orders to commit destructive acts of arson, including blowing up buildings. Project Mayhem spreads to cities across the country in ways that would impress Bin Laden. Durden claims that the way to enlightenment is through the destruction of the material world and embracing pain. He claims that when one turns against God, he has nothing to fear and can do anything he wants, echoing Crowley's doctrine of do what thou wilt. Our fathers were models for God. If our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? You have to consider the possibility that God does not like you. He never wanted you. In all probability, he hates you. This is not the worst thing that can happen. We don't need him. We are God's unwanted children. So be it! It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. At the end of the movie, Durden's main disciple finds out that he is in fact possessed by Durden himself, an entity that is portrayed as another part of his psyche. He seeks to kill Tyler Durden off to overt the destruction of the country. He feels that the only way he can kill him is by destroying his own flesh and blowing his brains out. My eyes are open. In another Gnostic movie called Dark City, we're met again with the lie that the, the reality that we live in is manufactured and that it's false. In fact, in Dark City, it even gives us the pretext again that the annihilation of life maybe isn't so bad. Maybe it's the only way to escape the Matrix. In Dark City, humans are depicted as living in a little zoo where entities that have created their world await for humans to undergo an imposed sleep so they can change the city and move people in and out and even manipulate people's memories and circumstances at will. John Murdoch, one of the couple people who happens to wake up when the world is being manipulated while everybody else is asleep and realizes that he is living in a false reality, goes around trying to wake everybody else up by shouting, wake up! Wake up! The way out of the dark city is to acquire occult power or telepathic energies and learn how to tune. The entities that rule them are called dying gods. Aleister Crowley called the creator the dying god, who would be replaced by the human superman of the Antichrist. The creators in dark city are said to not be able to stand light so they create a world of darkness. They're said also to be without souls or without spiritual capacity. This was a charge made by Gnostics against the Creator, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They are told, your entire history is an illusion, a fabrication, as it is for all of us. Not in this place. Your entire history is an illusion, a fabrication, as it is with all of us. You made those drawings happen with your gift. In the end, humans find that they have been conned, as in the Matrix, everything is false. The only reality is spiritual occult power, as in the Matrix as well. As in Fight Club, liberation is thought to be found through suicide. A police officer who realizes that he has been part of the con is trying to escape the Dark City and finally finds the answer in killing himself. I figured a way out! As you can see, Gnosticism provides a really strong pretext for the destruction of humanity. In fact, it's interesting that Adolf Hitler, who killed six million Jews, actually was a follower of many of the teachings of Madame Blavatsky, a leading Gnostic teacher. In fact, probably the leading female Gnostic teacher of the last century. In fact, the swastika was first introduced to Germany in Madame Blavatsky's periodicals. Next to Adolf Hitler's bed, he kept a copy of Blavatsky's book, The Secret Doctrine, which was all about the building of the Aryan Superman race. Gnostic Satanist Aleister Crowley claimed that Adolf Hitler was seeking to fulfill Crowley's Book of the Law and implement Crowley's New Eon. Incredibly, neo-Gnostic leaders have justified the murder of six million Jews by Adolf Hitler using the same rationale as Charles Manson, claiming that such victims were in reality being set free. Sadly, many New Age leaders have justified the annihilation of a huge part of the human race based upon Gnostic teaching.
Neo-Gnostic leader Neil Walsh, in his popular New Age book, Conversations with God, claims that Hitler went to heaven. The demonic spirit that communicated to Walsh in Conversations with God taught Walsh that Hitler was doing his Jewish victims a favor by murdering them. He claims, quote, The mistakes Hitler made did no harm or damage to those whose deaths he caused. Those souls were released from their earthly bondage, like butterflies emerging from a cocoon. When you see the utter perfection in everything, not just in those things with which you agree, but, and perhaps especially, those things with which you disagree, you achieve mastery. Another popular movie like The Da Vinci Code that promotes false gospels is Stigmata. Stigmata's epilogue repeats the lie that the Gnostic Gospel Thomas is the, quote, closest record we have of the words of the historical Jesus, end quote. The truth, though, is that the Gospel of Thomas is a second century Gnostic work that has Jesus teaching in verse 114 that women are unworthy to enter the kingdom of heaven and that the only way that they can be saved is if they somehow turn themselves into men. The movie Stigmata depicts the Roman Catholic Church as covering up the contents of a fictitious second century gospel called the Jesus Gospel. Most of the words that are said to be in this gospel are taken from the so-called Gospel of Thomas. In a convergence of Satan's deception of Eve and Eden and Jesus' baptism, a Pittsburgh hairdresser is depicted as eating the forbidden fruit. After she partakes of the apple, she is submerged in water in a Gnostic-like baptism. After she is submerged, the camera then pans to a crucifix so that she is identified with Jesus at his baptism. After this, even as the Bible states that after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove, a dove mysteriously appears in her apartment. This dove drops a feather upon her. It is at this point that she is submerged again. However, she is not filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but she becomes possessed by an evil, violent spirit who nearly drowns her while seizing possession of her body. This spirit that possesses her uses her body as a medium and identifies itself as a dead priest that wants to reveal a newly discovered gospel. A priest who investigates miracles comes to her home to discover that the spirit that is possessing her is writing out Aramaic words from the so-called Jesus gospel on her wall. The movie purports that this is, quote, the most significant Christian relic ever found, end quote. The priest will soon discover that she is possessed and that the spirit using her body is communicating a Gnostic gospel. The spirit that possesses her throws him from one end of the room to the other like a rag doll. After nearly killing the priest, she then appears before him experiencing stigmata as the spirit possessing her further seeks to identify her with Christ in an effort to pawn off this false gospel. Irenaeus, the second century church father, he was the top apologist in the second century for the Christian faith. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Irenaeus preserved Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which came from the first century. He had noted that there were many false gospels emerging in the second century, claiming to be true gospels. And he noted that the Gospel of Judas was a fictitious gospel. But it's interesting that he tells us the Gospel of Judas was written by the Cainites. Unfortunately, National Geographic does not tell the whole story of what Irenaeus said about the Cainites who wrote the Gospel of Judas. The Cainites, according to Irenaeus, took their name from the homicidal Cain who murdered his brother Abel. The Apostle John states that Cain was of the evil one. The Cainites hated the Creator God and worshipped Satan in the guise of Sophia. So it should not surprise us that they venerated people like Cain and the traitor Judas. Irenaeus also tells us that they venerated wicked men like Korah who revolted against Moses and God and whom God sucked into hell alive. Irenaeus states that they also venerated Esau, who sold his birthright for some food. 
He further states that the Cainites claim that they hold the secrets of the Sodomites. Irenaeus tells us that they engaged in perversions that are so evil that they are unlawful to mention. He states that they claim that spiritual entities would empower them as they engage in their perverted acts. Many Gnostics taught that since the flesh is made by an evil creator, and that they were at war with this creator, they deliberately rebelled against his moral law. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene states that, quote, The Savior said there is no sin. Gnostic Lester Crowley said that every Christian sin is a sacrament for the Gnostic. Dan Brown also perpetuates the lie uh, that there is no sin. In fact, in the Da Vinci Code, he states that uh, original sin is really a myth. Neil Walsh, in his New Age book called Conversations with God, has God stating, quote, Obedience is not growth, and growth is what I desire. This spirit claimed to be God also tells him, quote, There is no such thing as the Ten Commandments, in that God's law is no law. Thus, Walsh claims to approve of sexual activity by both teenagers and even children. The movie Pleasantville, uh, starring Tobey Maguire, an all-star cast of Hollywood actors, perpetuates the Gnostic lie that there is no such thing as sin. In fact, it's interesting because Pleasantville actually celebrates sin and glorifies the fall of man. In the movie Pleasantville, Don Knotts is cast as a God figure. He comes to the home of David and Jennifer as a TV repairman. TV repair? TV repair? Yeah, TV busted. Yeah? Well, here I am. David is a disillusioned teenager who hates the real world. Jennifer, his sister, is cast as a sleazy teenager who just wants to have fun. Do you think you could, like, do this soon? It's almost 6.30. <laughs> Take care now. After the God figure fixes their TV and leaves, David and his sexually promiscuous sister Jennifer fight over a remote control to their TV set and are suddenly magically transported into the 1950s black and white sitcom called Pleasantville. In Pleasantville, everything is just that, pleasant. Pleasantville is supposed to be a picture of the Garden of Eden where everything is innocent. Once in Pleasantville, they find that they are trapped and that they have been transformed into a Leave it to Beaver or Eisenhower type family and become Bud and Mary Sue, the children of George and Betty Parker. Pleasantville is described as a place of family values and safe sex. What follows, though, is a lesson in moral relativistic propaganda wherein Derry Ross, the film's writer and director, celebrates the fall of man and glorifies sin. Jennifer takes on the role of Satan as she seeks to introduce the teenagers to sin and casual sex in Pleasantville. Later in the film, she will say that she has had ten times more sex than all the other girls. After Mary Sue initiates the first resident of Pleasantville into sexual sin, the teenager she has initiated into a sexual relationship notices the first color in Pleasantville as he sees a strange rose. From there on, the black and white world of Pleasantville is transformed into a more and more beautiful and colorful place as it becomes more and more sinful. Mary Sue, though, is not content to lead other youth alone into casual sex. She also introduces Mrs. Parker, who has taken on the role of her mother, into all kinds of sexual exploration and deviancy. Well, sex. Are you okay? Uh, yes. It's uh, just that... Your father would never do anything like that. We know, Mom. There are other ways to enjoy yourself without death. Gary Ross, the filmmaker who made Pleasantville, stated that Joan Allen's role as Betty Parker, who becomes a promiscuous adulteress, that, quote, in a sense, what Joan had to play is Eve, the very first woman. 
If Mrs. Parker is a picture of Eve, it is clear that Mary Sue is a picture of the devil, as she leads Mrs. Parker into a life of unfaithfulness to her husband, which begins with sexual exploration, then pornography, and eventually turns into full-blown adultery. After her first act, things begin to go wrong in Pleasantville, as they experience their first fire. Later, Mrs. Parker leaves her husband for Mr. Johnson, who works at the soda shop, and desires to have a sexual relationship with her. She agrees to allow him to paint her in the nude. Mrs. Parker is painted nude by Mr. Johnson and what is to appear as a stained glass window on the front of the soda shop, one of the many blasphemies in the movie. The pornographic imagery is seen even by little children and causes major disturbances in the Pleasantville community. This perversion begets violence as minors who are sexually aroused by the public display of pornography attempt to gang rape Mrs. Parker. You know that is a lovely shade of blue. Don't you think that's a lovely shade of blue? As the movie moves on and more and more people are fornicating, committing adultery, and viewing pornography, Pleasantville is becoming more and more technicolor. Pleasantville glorifies sin and caricatures innocence, love, and righteousness as insipidly mundane. The film was ultimately a brazen celebration and justification of rebellion against God's moral law. Typically, those who are stuck in the black and white world of Pleasantville can only become colorful if they break the laws of traditional morality. Pleasantville perpetuates the satanic lie that joy comes from disobedience and rebellion against God's moral law. Pleasantville even goes so far as to depict Bud with his date in a Garden of Eden-like scene where she picks an apple as symbolic of the forbidden fruit. She then takes the apple and like Eve who gave to Adam, she then gives some of the forbidden fruit to Bud. This of course takes place at Lover's Lane where everyone is losing their virginity. Later, Don Knotts in the role of God is seen reprimanding Bud from bringing sin into the world of Pleasantville. Go on, try it. Right there! What do you call that, huh? You know, you don't deserve this place. You don't deserve to live in this paradise. As with ancient Gnosticism, in Pleasantville, Christian symbolism is turned on its head. Partaking of the forbidden fruit does not bring death, but freedom, just as Satan promised. The burning bush is extinguished at Bud's command and with his help. The commandments that are given after sin enters into Pleasantville are repudiated by Bud, who leads an open revolt. The first rain and flood in Pleasantville, which takes place after Bud eats from the apple that his date had picked at Lover's Lane, is not a judgment to be concerned about, for Bud tells everyone, quote, don't be afraid, it's only rain. Come on, come on. <laughs> Bud leads a revolt by painting a mural on a wall with Mr. Johnson that has a nude lady on it as well as another apple with a serpent coiled around it. Yet another not-so-subtle hint that we are dealing with Satan's original revolt against God. Tom Cruise starred in a Gnostic 1999 Stanley Kubrick movie called Eyes Wide Shut that depicts a secret society of perverts who engage in a Hollywood-glorified Gnostic orgy. In fact, Dan Brown states in his book, The Da Vinci Code, that the perverse movie Eyes Wide Shut has similarities to Eros Gamas or sexual orgies practiced by Gnostics. In Eyes Wide Shut, Tom Cruise is on a quest to satisfy his sexual demons. He ends up as a clandestine observer who witnesses an underground Gnostic orgy that includes some of the most powerful people in his community. The Gnostic sex orgy that Tom Cruise witnesses also includes a human sacrifice. Again, an emphasis on the lack of value or the cheapening of human life. Near the end of the movie, Tom Cruise comes home to his wife after witnessing the satanic Gnostic orgy. 
He finds her laughing in her sleep. His wife has also experienced Gnostic revelation. <laughs> Alice? She tells Tom Cruise that in her dream that they were naked and ashamed in a garden. But then she was naked with a bunch of men who were having sex with her, and she had no guilt. This is a Gnostic way of reversing the effects of the fall, where there's no shame in adulterous sex and sexually perverse orgies. The former Gnostic, Epiphanius, explained how the Gnostic group that he had belonged to worshipped the devil god in the name of Christ, celebrated sexual orgies in which partners were swapped. It was taught that when Jesus gave the Last Supper, semen was collected and offered as the body of Christ, and was then consumed. The Gnostics, to whom Epiphanius belonged, not only consumed semen, but they also consumed women's menstrual blood. If a woman became pregnant, they would abort the baby and pound its body into mortar, and then mix it with honey and spices and then eat it. The truth is, tragically, that sexual perversion and breaking God's moral law does not bring vitality and color and health into our lives. It brings forth death. And so it is with anything that we pervert that God has created. God is an awesome God. He's wonderful. However, we turn like Satan away from him and seek to break his law. Ultimately, we're only hurting others and ourselves. God will be glorified in everything. Uh, the Bible says that even the wrath of man, God will use to praise him. God wins in the end. Another movie with Gnostic overtones starring Tom Cruise is the movie Minority Report. Minority Report is based on a book written by Philip K. Dick, who we'd already discovered is a man who not only claimed to be Gnostic and that the world is all an illusion by an evil creator, but also admitted that he's possessed by an entity that is communicating this message. In Minority Report, Tom Cruise plays the chief of the Department of Pre-Crime. And based on psychic prognostications, he's able to change the future and prevent a series of horrific events. This is not only an aspect of Dickian Gnosticism, but it's also a teaching within Scientology. Elwin Hubbard taught, as we shall see, that what is believed to be the second coming of Christ can be derailed by the mission of Scientology, which he characterizes as the mission of Antichrist revealed in the book of Revelation. Hubbard claims that the second coming will begin a series of catastrophic events that Scientology has a fleeting opportunity to stop. Scientology is at its core Gnostic in its cosmology, teaching that the earth we live in was made by an evil creator over 76 million years ago to be a prison planet. Scientology states that humanity is trapped against its will in the mess or matter, space, time, and energy universe. Like ancient Gnosticism, Scientology teaches that man is God and is basically good and has forgotten his divine state. Hubbard stated that mankind's problem is that he has succumbed, quote, to the resulting illusion of entrapment within it, end quote. Hubbard claimed that he had obtained the secret gnosis needed to escape the cosmic prison we live in designed by the evil creator. Scientology is not only at its core Gnostic, but even quotes from Gnostic texts deemed heretical by the Christian church to support its Gnostic beliefs. In the publication Advance, issue 93, page 16, Scientology quotes from the Gnostic text Pistis Sophia to support its Gnostic teaching on reincarnation. In Vanilla Sky, yet another movie starring Tom Cruise with Gnostic overtones, Cruise is trapped in a dream world after having been frozen. He undergoes a series of horrific events, like that of a tragic car accident that leaves his face mangled and for which he hides behind a mask. Cruise is at first convinced that he is living in the real world, but comes to realize later that he is in an illusion. As with ancient Gnosticism and Scientology, Cruise's problem is ignorance. The vanilla sky refers to a canvas upon which one is free to create his or her own reality. In Cruise's case, his dreams turn into nightmares. However, as in Gnosticism, Sophia comes to save the day. I'm not a big fan of heights. I know. We erased what really happened from your memory. Erased? Replaced by a better life under these beautiful Monet-like skies. My mother's favorite. A better life because you had Sophia. 
and you sculpted your lucid dream out of the iconography of your youth. An album cover that once moved you. An album cover? There are some things that you're not old enough to understand just yet. A movie you saw once late at night that showed you what a father could be like. Or what love could be like. This was a kind woman, an individual, more than your equal. You barely knew her in your real life, but in your lucid dream, she was your savior. What happened in my real life? Something happened. In Vanilla Sky, Penelope Cruz plays the character Sophia who is Tom Cruise's only link to reality on the other side of the dream world. In Gnosticism, Sophia is Satan in disguise, promising to lead humanity out of the illusion supposedly made by the Creator. Open your eyes, open your eyes. Tom Cruise, one of the world's most popular actors, is a disciple of the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. But L. Ron Hubbard is a disciple of the teachings of Satanist Aleister Crowley. What many people don't realize is L. Ron Hubbard viewed Scientology as his Satanism in disguise. L. Ron Hubbard actually instructed Scientologists to read material written by his admittedly good friend, Satanist Aleister Crowley. In fact, what you're about to hear is an actual recording of L. Ron Hubbard talking about his so-called good friend, Aleister Crowley. He could simply say, I have action. I'm a magician. Uh, the magic cults of the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries in the Middle East were fascinating. The only modern work that has anything to do with them is trifle wild in spots, but it's fascinating work in itself, and that's work written by Alastair Crowley, the late Alastair Crowley, my very good friend. And uh, he he did himself a splendid uh, piece of aesthetics built around those magic cults. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, reading to get a hold of a copy of a book, quite rare, but it can be obtained. The Master Therion, T-H-E-R-I-O-N. The Master Therion by Alastair Crowley. He signs himself the Beast. The Mark of the Beast, 666. Hubbard's son, Elwin Hubbard Jr., who wrote the book Elwin Hubbard, Messiah of Madman, stated that his father believed that he was Satan incarnate. Hubbard Jr. stated, quote, Also, you've got to realize that my father did not worship Satan. He thought he was Satan. He was one with Satan. He had a direct pipeline of communication and power with him. According to Ron Jr., his father claimed to be the, quote, one who came after and was a Lester Crowley's successor, and had taken on the mantle of the great beast. Elwin Hubbard Jr. in his book, Elwin Hubbard, Messiah Madman, states that his father told him that Scientology actually began on December 1st, 1947, the very day Satanist Lester Crowley died. Crowley instructed his followers to not only submit to his satanic teachings as a guiding light into the age of Antichrist, but encouraged them to put a spin on a satanic cosmology in an effort to create new packages of Satanists to be gobbled up by the masses. Crowley stated that in order to become an adeptus exemptist, quote, the adept must prepare and publish a thesis setting forth his knowledge of the universe and his proposals for its welfare and progress. He will thus be known as the leader of a school of thought. Hubbard did just that and packaged his own form of sci-fi Gnosticism as the only way to escape the evil forces who control the mess universe. Hubbard stated, quote, the mystery of this universe has been, as far as its track is concerned, completely occluded. No one has ever been able to make any breakthrough or come off with it and know what happened. I finally was able to make a breakthrough which brought people through the zone safely. John Travolta is another huge actor like Tom Cruise, like Tom Cruise also is a Scientologist. What's interesting about John Travolta is even as Tom Cruise has played in movies with Gnostic overtones, John Travolta actually played in and produced the movie Battlefield Earth. 
Battlefield Earth, incidentally, was written by, guess who? It was written by L. Ron Hubbard. Battlefield Earth actually dramatizes a battle which has parallels to what L. Ron Hubbard himself taught about the final battle between aliens and earthlings, Christ and Antichrist. Battlefield Earth is set in the future where Earth is taken over by aliens and humans are enslaved. Belief in a supernatural god is scoffed at by the revolutionary leader, played by Barry Pepper, who seeks to lead a revolt and topple the evil alien race. I see you have been fortunate in the hunt. I hope you thank the gods. Looks like a non-believer. I believe what I can see. Non-believer, huh? You from the caves? You've probably never seen a god. Would you like to see one? What do you know about gods? Elwin Hubbard's Battlefield Earth seems to be more Elwin Hubbard and Hollywood propaganda to prepare the world for the Antichrist. I was given an incredible document by Keith Scott, an ex-Scientologist who actually speaks out against Scientology publicly. Uh, Keith Scott told me that he had received this document from an OT3 level Scientologist who works in Scientology as a clerk. The document is entitled OT8 Series 1 Confidential Student Briefing of May 1980 by L. Ron Hubbard. In this document, to which only the highest ranking Scientologists were privy, we read Hubbard's statements where he declares that he is a fulfillment of the Antichrist. Hubbard stated, quote, No doubt you are familiar with the Revelation section of the Bible where various events are predicted. Also mentioned is a brief period of time in which the arch enemy of Christ, referred to as the Antichrist, will reign, and his opinions have sway. All this makes for very fantastic, entertaining reading, but there is truth in it. This Antichrist represents the forces of Lucifer, literally the light bearer, or light bringer. Lucifer being a mythical representation of the force of enlightenment, the galactic confederacy. My mission could be said to fulfill the biblical promise represented by this brief Antichrist period. During this period, there's a fleeting opportunity for the whole scenario to be effectively derailed, which would make it impossible for the mass Maccabean landings or second coming to take place. The second coming is designed, among other things, to trigger a rapid series of destructive events and bring about the eventual enslavement of mankind. The Church of Scientology went to great lengths in court to get the document banned from public disclosure on the grounds of copyright law. But the judge in the case ruled that on the grounds of public interest, the copyright does not apply. Hubbard also states in this document that, quote, Jesus was not nearly the sainted figure he has been made out to be, in addition to be a lover of young boys and men. He was given to uncontrollable bursts of temper and hatred that belied the general message of love, understanding, and other Markov PR. Upon his death, Elwin Hubbard also seemed to be priming Scientologists to accept the eventual Antichrist as though it were himself in a future incarnation. He went on to state, quote, I will soon leave this world only to return and complete my mission with another identity. I'll return not as a religious leader, but as a political one. I will not be known to most of you, my activities misunderstood by many. Yet along with your constant effort in the Theta Band, I will effectively postpone and then halt a series of events designed to make happy slaves of us all. So there you have it, the secret that I've kept close to my chest all these years. Tragically, all of these lies are setting up the world for the final Antichrist. Even the Space Odyssey series had Gnostic overtones. One of the main characters evolves by being set free from the limitations of his earthly body. And in 2010, peace comes to the earth between the Soviet Union and the United States only when a new sun appears, which is fittingly called Lucifer. J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series is the most popular children's book series ever written. Rowling's books and the subsequent movies based upon her books have helped initiate countless children into different forms of occult ideology. While Rowling acknowledges that sometimes it will take as much as a week to work something out in her stories, she admits that the initial story of Harry Potter and many of the other characters came in a stream of consciousness. Rowling admitted, quote, Harry as a character came fully formed as did the idea of his sidekicks, the characters of Ron and Hermione, who is the brains of the threesome. She said, it started with Harry, then all three characters and situations came flooding into my head. 
Rowling describes the way that she writes as though she is often in a stream of consciousness, and that at times she is only taking notes of things she sees and hears in what sound like visions. She states, quote, I see a situation and then I try to describe it as vividly as I can, end quote. I have a very visual imagination. I see it, then I try to describe what is in my mind's eye. For author J.K. Rowling, it all started on a train. It was 1990, and she was traveling from Manchester to London. Rowling describes her own writing ability in writing the Harry Potter series, much in the same way she describes the channeling of spirits that takes place in the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Is it possible that J.K. Rowling herself is being used by spirit entities to indoctrinate our children into witchcraft? Joan Rowling not only describes her introduction to her main characters in such a way as describing what she sees, but Rowling states that when she writes the dialogue between characters, she simply takes notes from what she hears almost audibly. She states, quote, and I do love writing dialogue. Dialogue comes to me as though I'm just overhearing a conversation, end quote. Blavatsky is an obvious reference to H.P. Blavatsky, as Blavatsky is a perfect anagram for Blavatsky, who shares the same initials as Harry Potter. Her name is usually written as H.P. Blavatsky. Blavatsky's book, Unfogging the Future, is listed as a divination text at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry in the Harry Potter series, and recalls Isis Unveiled, which is Blavatsky's first major work. Blavatsky is, of course, along with Satanist Aleister Crowley, a Gnostic founder of the modern-day New Age movement, or Neo-Gnosticism. Blavatsky, in her secret doctrine, quotes occultist Eliphaz Levi approvingly, stating, quote, Satan is the angel who is proud enough to believe himself God, brave enough to buy his independence at the price of eternal suffering and torture, beautiful enough to have adored himself in full divine light, strong enough to reign in darkness amidst agony, and to have built himself a throne on his inextinguishable pyre. The prince of anarchy served by a hierarchy of pure spirits. We saw earlier how both Blavatsky and Crowley taught that Satan liberated humanity from the Creator as he initiated Eve in the Garden of Eden. Harry Potter's escape from the world of muggles, which are non-magical human beings, is precipitated by a communication that takes place between Harry Potter and a serpent. Harry Potter escapes from the material world of the muggles to the spiritual world of witchcraft and wizardry. After Harry Potter escapes the world of material illusions, he finds out that he actually has godlike powers. J.K. Rowling not only seems to give her young and precious audience clues as to who big occultists were in the past as she initiates them into different forms of magic and occultism, but it's interesting because J.K. Rowling also seems to be patterning the life of Harry Potter after the life of Satanist Aleister Crowley. Like Harry Potter, Crowley abandoned his strict upbringing claiming that his mother was a tyrannical religious bigot and went on to discover that he was a sorcerer joining several occult orders. Like Harry Potter, Crowley realized he was a wizard as a preteen. Crowley stated, quote, Before I touched my teens, I was already aware that I was the beast, whose number is 666. While Crowley would claim to have committed several human sacrifices, he claimed that he killed his first cat at the age of 11. According to J.K. Rowling, Harry began to find out that he was a wizard at age 11. In Harry Potter, The Goblet of Fire, page 20, it is stated, quote, It had been enough of a shock for Harry to discover on his 11th birthday that he was a wizard. As in Crowley's Satanism, in the Harry Potter series, the number 11 takes on special significance. Crowley writes that, quote, 11 is the number of magic in itself. He also writes that 11, quote, is a sacred number par excellence of the new age or new eon. It is written in the book of the law, 11, as all their numbers who are of us. Crowley claimed that the number 11 was his magic number. Crowley began to spell magic with the letter K at the end of magic because the letter K is the 11th letter of the alphabet and had a special Kabbalistic meaning to Crowley as a Satanist. Not only does Harry realize that he has occult powers at the age of 11, but the length of Harry's wand seems to have special significance, as is perfectly suited for Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, the Goblet of Fire, page 310, we read, quote, Harry had weighed what felt like every wand in the shop. At last, he had found one that suited him. 
This one, which was made of holly, 11 inches long. Both Crowley and Harry did not only get their starts as sorcerers at the same age and under similar circumstances, but they both had distinguishing marks as children that revealed that they were sorcerers. For Harry Potter, this distinguishing mark, of course, was a lightning bolt. Crowley states in his confessions, at birth I had three distinguishing marks. He states that, quote, over the center of my heart I had four hairs curling from left to right in the exact form of a swastika. Before Hitler was, I am. Harry has a distinguishing mark on his forehead as well, which is an ancient occult symbol, a Nazi stylized lightning bolt. In an interview with Scholastic, when J.K. Rowling was asked, quote, why did you choose the lightning bolt as a trademark for Harry Potter? Rowling stated, quote, just because I decided that it would be an interesting and distinctive mark, end quote. It is interesting that Harry Potter's lightning bolt and Crowley's swastika both share a similar occult history. The lightning bolt has long been a symbol in the occult and Satanism. Crowley taught that the Satanist was to find his own magical path and that he was to follow the satanic maxim, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law, to realize his true destiny as a magician. The movie Artificial Intelligence is a pathetically depressing character of creation filled with hopelessness and despair. The movie sets up the audience at its very beginning with the question as to whether God can really share love with his creatures. A person. What responsibility does that person hold toward that Mecca in return? It's a moral question, isn't it? The oldest one of all. But in the beginning, didn't God create Adam to love him? By the end of the movie, the fake little boy can never find lasting love because he is not truly real. In the movie Total Recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a man who finds out that he is not real or that he is living in a dream world. By the end of the movie, he still doesn't even know if he is real or not. Sorry, Quaid. Your whole life is just a dream. In the movie From Hell, Johnny Depp smokes opium to receive psychic visions to aid him in solving crime cases. From Hell was written by Alan Moore who, as we have seen, claims that he became a better writer by practicing Satanist Aleister Crowley's magic and making contact with what he calls the demon of visual arts. In keeping with Moore's claim that Aleister Crowley, the Satanist, always made other Satanists the heroes in his novels like Diary of a Drug Fiend, Alan Moore makes Johnny Depp, another drug fiend, a hero. Depp, who is a major player in Hollywood, claims that he's possessed by demonic beings. He stated, quote, I know I have demons. Depp admitted, adding, quote, I'm 30 different people sometimes, end quote. Moore's graphic novel glorifies the murders by making them occult, ritualistic murders done by Masons. In one of the scenes, Moore even works Satanist Aleister Crowley and having him telling the investigator, quote, My name is Alexander, and I'm nearly 14. Tell me, do you think the man who's killing these ladies is doing something magic? 
end quote. Moore stated, quote, I worked Crowley into from hell as a small boy. Moore has Crowley doing the sign of silence while mentioning magic where a prostitute has been ritualistically murdered. Crowley makes reference to the sign of silence in some of his blood rituals. Moore stated that, quote, I had some guy from California, branch of Crowley's Order of the Templi Orientis, talking to me and he was sort of saying, oh, I thought that was really good, the way you have Crowley sucking the candy cane, because that's obviously reference to the sign of silence. And I thought, yeah, I guess it is. Moore claimed that he had worked the sign of silence into the scene intuitively. Moore sees a lot of his intuitive writing as the creativity of demonic beings that he has tapped into via Crowley's magic. In keeping with Crowley's principle of making the Satanists all the good guys in his novels, Alan Moore in his League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has everybody from vampires to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde being the saviors of the world. In the movie version of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen starring Sean Connery and many other top actors and actresses, Dr. Jekyll is actually no good without his demon, Mr. Hyde. Jekyll, come on! No need Hyde! No! Hyde will never use me again. Then what good are you? In the movie Constantine, based upon yet another graphic novel by Alan Moore, Keanu character is made to make occult power look good. Here we see Reeves on the movie poster with his occult-powered gun accentuating the cross, which in this case is obviously inverted for the poster. Constantine is based upon a graphic novel by Alan Moore called John Constantine Hellblazer, who as we have seen also wrote V for Vendetta. The movie features fallen angels and dialogue with the devil. In the graphic novel, part of John Constantine becomes one with the body of Satanist Aleister Crowley and is cast into hell. The Truman Show, starring the popular actor Jim Carrey, is yet another movie that propagates the whole Gnostic view that we've been trapped by an evil creator. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> the Truman Show is a movie about a man named Truman Burbank, who was adopted by a corporation before he was even born for the express purpose of exploitation in the reality show. After his birth, he is placed in an artificial world on the phony island town of Sea Haven, which unknown to Truman for the first 29 years of his life is really a Burbank studio. Hence his birth name, Truman Burbank. Truman is unknowingly viewed by millions of people in the television audience 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for the rest of his life as thousands of cameras record his every move. Say something! You're on television! You're live to the whole world! His artificial world is filled with actors and actresses carrying out a script for the entertainment of the world as well as the ego of Kristoff, the evil creator and director of the show. With just one. Kristoff lives in a celluloid world above the sky viewing Truman's every move, which is monitored from the moon station, which is a control center for the show. However, Truman Burbank comes to the Gnostic revelation that life is a scam, and that he lives in an illusory world, and finally realizes who the true man is within. It doesn't take a genius to realize that beyond the surface of a reality show gone overboard, that the two men most responsible for manipulating poor Truman's life are named Moses and Kristoff, or C-H-R-I-S-T-O-F, Christ off. Unmistakable of both the Old and New Testaments. Even as Truman finds the true man within, we also discover that Christ is way off as he seeks to exploit others to his own twisted glory. Just as God offers Moses the Promised Land, so director Peter Weir states that, quote, what Christoph proposed to Moses was unprecedented and staggering in its scope. He showed Moses plans for a new studio on a large parcel of land in Burbank, California. The studio was designed by ex-NASA scientists who had been working on a sealed environment for humans to live and work. The world that Christoph and Moses run is one of enslavement wherein Truman is duped in accepting limitations of a fabricated world that is passed off as real. To keep Truman from discovering the truth that the creation is a sham, Kristoff cruelly manufactures then exploits Truman's fears.
Eventually, Truman finds out that everything is false. Truman finds out that trust and faith in his creator is a delusion, but that suspicion and rebellion are at least a true freedom and fulfillment. Truman is depicted as a brave soul who broke through the barriers that hold us down to open himself up to the real world. This again is a depiction that the world we live in is phony, and through Gnosticism or cultism we can come to understand all is an illusion and find true enlightenment and spiritual reality. Truman, like Adam, is depicted as an innocent human being in Sea Haven, which is shown as a perfect paradise when everyone is good, conjuring up a picture of Eden before the fall. Even as Satan sought to get Adam and Eve to believe that God was holding out on them, the first time that we see Truman become aware that Christoph may be deceiving him is when a star falls from heaven and gives him enlightenment. Truman casts his gaze upon the strange light that has fallen from heaven. He discovers that it is labeled, quote, Sirius 9 Canis Major. Truman herein receives a hint that the world he lives in may be bogus, and the hint comes from a fallen light labeled Sirius 9. Sirius is the brightest star in the Canis Major constellation. Thus Truman's revelation that leads to the knowledge that Moses and Christoph have deceived him comes from a fallen star. It just so happens that Satan, who led Adam and Eve astray, is depicted in scripture as being a fallen star. The prophet Isaiah stated, quote, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn! You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Isaiah 14, 12-15 Philip K. Dick, who as we have seen, has influenced several Gnostic movies, claimed that spirit entities from the star Sirius are using him and others in popular culture to awaken the world to the truth that we are in a fabricated world like that of Truman's. There is a vast amount of Gnostic occult literature which identifies the star Sirius with Gnostic revelation and satanic forces. In Philip K. Dick's Exegesis of Vallis, he states that he is possessed by a spirit entity that claims to be from Sirius and that Sophia is going to be born again and that the insane creator will be overthrown and that, quote, invaders, end quote, using telepathic powers that have emanated from the planet star system Sirius covertly influence our history toward a fruitful end and eventually a new occult age will dawn. In Morals and Dogma, Albert Pike states, quote, the blazing star of five points, end quote, or the pentagram of the Masonic Lodges represents Sirius, the guardian and guide of our souls. Satanist Aleister Crowley identified his own spirit guide to be both Satan, whom he also referred to as Sirius. Truman experiences Gnostic initiation through three means of revelation that mirror Gnosticism. He experiences it from the fallen star that gives him knowledge, representing Satan. As we have seen, Gnostics recast Satan disguised as Sophia, who fell from the ultimate depth, and then in an act of self-redemption seeks to save humanity from the evil creator. Even as Gnosticism teaches that Eve set Adam free from the evil creator, Truman becomes enchanted by a woman he sees sitting by a tree. Her stage name as part of Christoph's script is Lauren, but feeling compassion for Truman Burbank, she reveals her real name as Sylvia and seeks to reveal to Truman covertly that he has been deceived by Christoph and Moses and that the world he lives in is phony. Truman, what do they want? Listen to me. Everybody knows. Everybody knows everything you do. They're pretending, Truman. Do you understand? Everybody's pretending. Oh, no, no, I don't know. No, no, no. My name's not Lauren. It's Sylvia. My name's Sylvia. Sylvia. Yeah. Lawrence, sweetheart. Out again. Hey, wait a minute. Who are you? Truman, please no, don't listen no. to him. What's everything I've told you is the truth. Please. This, this. It's fake. It's all for you. I don't understand. And the sky and the on, sea, honey. everything. It's a set. It's a show. Everybody's watching right. you. Please don't listen please, to him. Lauren. He's gonna lie to you. Watch him right now.
I really would like to know what's going on. Just as Eve was cast out of Eden, so Sylvia is forcibly taken off the scene and eventually cast out of the Sea Haven paradise. This happens when an actor pretending to be her father lies to Truman and forcibly removes her from the island paradise. This is a depiction of Yahweh falsely claiming to be the father of Eve and in fact having no real right over her real destiny. Fiji, we're moving to Fiji. Fiji? As in Gnosticism, Truman not only receives revelation from a fallen star, from a woman at a tree, but he also receives revelation from self-discovery. Truman looks at himself in a mirror, and the revelation that began with the fallen star continues to open his eyes to the secret gnosis of who he truly is. Gnostic Gospels, like that of the Gospel of Thomas, encourage Gnostic initiates to look within oneself for revelation and for one's own divinity. Rather than Jesus being the light of the world, the Gospel of Thomas states, quote, There is light within each person, and it lights up the whole universe. If it does not shine, there is darkness. It is as Truman looks to himself that he discovers that the creator of the world is a phony who has created a phony world and that he comes to discover the light of the true man within. As the Truman Show progresses, we not only discover more and more about Truman, but we discover more and more about the evil creator. He goes from being a control freak to one that flies into a rage. In the end, he loses his hold on Truman and is defeated. He is depicted as a monstrous creator who derives pleasure from being in control and watching another live a lie. In the film's climactic scene, Kristoff is revealed to be an evil manipulator. Truman makes a heroic attempt to escape Kristoff's phony world by a sailboat. Kristoff, filled with wrath, loses control and rains down a thunderous storm upon Truman's head. Kristoff is intent on stopping Truman from escaping, even if it means drowning him. Notice that we get another clue as to what's going on here, and we see the boat number, boat number 139. We see number 139 on the boat when the boat is sailing, but we also see that after Truman recovers from the capsized boat, he's clutching the sail, and the director wants to make sure that we see that 139 all over again. This is significant, because in the Bible, Psalm 139 is all about God seeing everything. In Psalm 139, the psalmist talks about God knowing the psalmist's location and his every thought. Psalm 139 states, quote, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise to the wings of the dawn, I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as a light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. After nearly drowning, Truman fails to turn back to Kristoff. Kristoff finally speaks directly to his, quote, son, end quote, from heaven. Truman. <laughs> I can hear you. Who are you? I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. Then who am I? You're the star. Was nothing real? You were real. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. Same lives. The same deceit, but in my world, you have nothing to fear. As in Gnosticism, Truman recognizes his own power over Kristoff, and appearing to walk on water, he makes his ascent up into a door in the heavens to find freedom from Kristoff's restrictions. Actually, he becomes his own savior with the help of the fallen star, the help of the woman at the tree, and self-discovery. 
Ultimately, the crowd is made to celebrate Truman's salvation from the evil creator, Kristoff and Moses. It seems that director Peter Weir, through the Truman Show, purposely sought to get people to question the authority of the creator. Weir stated, quote, Truman lived on, unaware that his life was unlike any other. After all, why should he doubt his world? It was all he'd ever known, as real to him as ours is to us. Truman's freedom was supposedly his daringness to break the rules and to overcome the phony boundaries set up to keep him from the truth. This appeals to our sinful nature because we would like to play God and blame the Creator for all of our problems. We like to think that we could create our own world and leave our Creator in the dust. The reality is that Psalm 139 is not about an evil Creator. It's actually a psalm of comfort. It's a song of comfort that shows us that thank God that God is on the throne no matter what we go through and that He tenderly cares for each one of us. The psalmist goes on to state in Psalm 139 that even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The movie X-Men easily eclipsed the Da Vinci Code in 2006. Gnostics and other cultists have long referred to the development of extrasensory psychic powers as Faculty X. In different forms of Gnosticism, humans are believed to mutate when they are spiritually possessed by plasmates or demons or other spiritual entities and then develop extrasensory powers. In New X-Men, Assault and Weapon Plus, Wolverine and other mutant superheroes are given the commission to save the world from the evil creator. The world is described as an evil petri dish used for torture and experimentation of humans. One of the mutants describes this wickedly created world this way, quote, a square mile of experimental micro-reality with its own culture, its own religion, its own history, a giant petri dish where the lives of ordinary humans are used up in days, even moments, a torture chamber, they call it the world. The role of Wolverine and the other mutants is to save the world by overthrowing the Creator. The Bible states that Satan was a beautiful angel who was created by God with a seal of perfection. The scriptures state that he rebelled against God and was corrupted, thus falling from heaven. It is significant that in X-Men, one of the founding members of the X-Men is an angel, who is also known as the Dark Angel. Like the fallen angel Satan, the angel in X-Men is at first perfect, but then said to be, quote, corrupted, end quote. He then, like the angel Satan, is depicted as rebelling against his father. In the movie, he runs through a glass window and has what is depicted as a great fall. However, before he hits the ground, he spreads forth his wings and takes off and flies up into the heavens. Incredibly, in the X-Men series, the Dark Angel is also known as Death, the fourth rider of the Apocalypse. Biblically, we're told in the book of Revelation that both Death and Hell follow after the fourth rider of the Apocalypse. We're also told that he's responsible for the death of a quarter of the human population. Currently, that would be over a billion and a half people. Incredibly, another founding member of the X-Men, besides that of the Dark Angel, is the Beast. In the Bible, the Antichrist himself is referred to repeatedly as the Beast. The scriptures state that he will unify the world geopolitically, in preparation for Satan's battle against God at Armageddon. In X-Men, the Beast is the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. His aim is to make the occult-powered mutants acceptable to the human race and bring world unity. Of course, in the X-Men, both the Dark Angel and the Beast are portrayed as heroic. They're portrayed as the good guys, the saviors of the world. As you can see, Hollywood has played a major role in influencing the masses with Gnostic ideology. Whether it's Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, which is decidedly Gnostic, or it's The Matrix, or The Truman Show, or any number of several of the movies that we've covered.
Much Gnostic thought is perpetuated through these most memorable of Hollywood movies and big-time actors and actresses. Uh, what is heartbreaking, though, is that anybody would take their cue as to what is real and what is false from Hollywood. Hollywood is notoriously known uh, to be the phoniest industry on the planet. The Gnostic teaching that the creator of the physical universe is evil is just an outright lie. The scriptures teach very clearly that God is good. In fact, the scriptures give evidence of his goodness all around. You can see this lie through and through. For instance, in the movie Pleasantville, when they sin, beautiful colors appear. In fact, there's this beautiful rainbow that shows up. Uh, it's interesting as well because in Dark City, when they are freed from the evil creators, uh, the best thing that they can imagine, creating their own world instead of Dark City, would be a beautiful beach. Uh, Truman, when he escapes uh, sea Haven, where he wants to really go is a place like Tahiti. What's amazing is it's God, the creator of the universe, who made the beautiful beaches. It's God, the creator of the universe, who's the one who made colors, who made the rainbow. It's the Lord God who made places like Hawaii and Tahiti. In fact, the whole world, the Bible tells us, was a paradise when God created it. Man's rebellion did not earn him or bring him salvation, but turned a paradise that God created totally beautiful into well, a fallen creation, a twisted creation. It's because of man's rebellion that even these beautiful things have become tainted. Psalm 19 states that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork, and day after day they utter speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. In Romans chapter 1, the word of God states that God's divine power, his attributes, are seen in the things that he's created. Such wonders show his unmatched power and artistry. Even God's moral laws are beautiful loving gifts that he has given to bless us. Tragically, Hollywood repeatedly cast dispersion on the Creator and His moral law. Like the serpent in the garden, the constant refrain of Hollywood's message is to rebel against the Creator and His moral law. He's given us His commands to love Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as we love ourselves, because He wants us to be a blessing to each other. Have you been conned by Hollywood and its resurrection of the ancient lie of Gnosticism? Have you been conned by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and any number of these Hollywood movies? It was the Da Vinci Code that Dan Brown has Eve being a goddess. It was the Da Vinci Code that Sophie Navu, one of the main characters, whose name has Eve in the middle of it, is brought into the gnosis that she is related to a goddess. It's in the Da Vinci Code that the combination to the Holy Grail is A-P-P-L-E. It's from the opening of that apple and the knowledge that that brings that they come to discover the Holy Grail in the pyramid of the Louvre Museum, which Dan Brown inaccurately states has 666 window panes. You must by now see where all this is going and what this is all about. It's Satan's ancient wicked lie. The bottom line of Dan Brown's book and movie, The Da Vinci Code, actually appears on the very last page in the very last paragraph of The Da Vinci Code, the book. It is here that Dan Brown ultimately turns people away from the worship of the true God, the biblical God, and turns them to the worship of a dead woman's bones. It is in this last paragraph that Dan Brown states, quote, Like murmurs of spirits in the darkness, forgotten words echoed. The quest for the Holy Grail is the quest to kneel before the bones of Mary Magdalene. A journey to pray at the feet of the outcast one. With a sudden upwelling of reverence, Robert Langdon fell on his knees. For a moment he thought he heard a woman's voice, the wisdom of the ages rising from the chasms of the earth. Dan Brown might as well have said, a chorus of demons belched forth from the bowels of hell, saying, don't worship the true God, the creator of the universe, but bow down before the dead bones, these crusty old bones of some bygone woman. Uh, tragically, Satan's objective has always been to get us to worship the outcast one. In fact, Dan Brown said in reverence to the outcast one, Satan is ultimately the outcast one. And Satan uses images of false gods and goddesses to get us to bow down to everything but the true and living God. The scriptures, however, tell us that the gods of the nations are demons. 
They're really demonic forces that use different uh, material things or different spiritual things that are not what are to be worshipped to get us to worship false gods, principalities and powers, uh, wickedness, perversion. Uh, however, thank God, our God, His great goodness, while He could have totally just justly destroyed each and every one of us, allows you to come to the knowledge of the truth, to understand that there is a Creator who loves you, there's a Creator that made everything. He is a good God. In fact, He is infinitely good. He's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely wise. And Dan Brown is ultimately prescribing idolatry. In fact, the Bible tells us that all idolaters, idolaters are those who put others' things or other people or other gods before the true God. In fact, God is holy and just and good. In fact, God is so good that He not only gives us His commands to bless us, but in return for man's rebellion against God's law, he could be just totally just, and He is absolutely just, but in His total justice, He could punish us and give us exactly what we deserve. But God in His grace and His mercy and His love became a man and died in our place on the cross. That whoever puts their trust in Him and what Jesus Christ did on the cross and dying for our sins and rising again on the third day and triumphing over Satan and death can have eternal life. But God is a holy God. He is a good God. He's a just God. He's a righteous God. The scriptures say He's a jealous God and that He will have no other gods before Him. He's the one true God. And when Dan Brown and others tell us to worship everything or anything but the one true and living God, they are encouraging idolatry. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says this, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. God is so good so righteous and so just that he must punish evil. Uh, it's the evil judge who doesn't punish the rapist and the child molester and the wife beater and, and, you know, and on and on and on. But God is so good that he makes sure he punishes evil. However, God in his great goodness does not give us what we ultimately deserve. We all deserve damnation and hell. But God in his great goodness has to be just, but also chooses in his great goodness to love us and extricate us from that situation if we have faith. In fact, the scriptures teach very, very clearly that God became a man and suffered my punishment, the punishment uh, of, of death that we deserve on the cross. In fact, God became a man, even though He created the universe, He could have just wiped us out. In His great love and goodness, He became a man and died the most horrible death that anybody could even conceive of dying. He suffered so that we could have eternal life, so that we could escape the eternal sentence of death. In fact, Jesus said, enter the straight gate, for broad and spacious is the way that leads to destruction. Many people go that way. But straight and narrow is the way it leads to life, and few are those who find it. There are those who will populate hell because they will rebel against God, wanting to be their own gods, wanting to do their own things. And eventually they will escape the domain of God into an eternal hell that's absent of all the love and goodness that we see around us and all the goodness that is inherited by the saints. It's not a good deal. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You are being encouraged before your life is up right now to choose Jesus Christ, to turn to Him, to fall on your face before Him because you know what? The scriptures say that everybody will not bow down before Mary Magdalene's dead bones, but the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including you. Whether it's on earth, it says, or in heaven, or under the earth in hell, everybody's going to bow down. Everybody's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, you've been warned in love. This has been brought to you because you're loved and you're cared about. Somebody cared enough to have you watch this, to let you see this, to say, hey, this is the truth. There's a huge con going on right now. Satan's alive, but God is far more alive, and God is victorious. You know, let us be warned from this video as well, not only that we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, 
but that we need to be very discerning as to what we watch and we allow into the heart and to the ears and, and how we allow our children to be influenced. Let us be discerning Christians. Let us understand what's going on in the world. Let us deal with it head on and say, hey, this is truth, this is a lie, and this is the one who deserves to truly be worshipped, the true and living God.